This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Shane Taylor. Now, for those of you that have seen the show Band of Brothers, Shane portrayed Doc Rowe, the army medic in Easy Company. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into acting, the audition process for Band of Brothers, the incredible boot camp they went through with Captain Dale Dye, the powerful Bastoin episode, life after Band of Brothers, audition stories, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Shane Taylor. Enjoy. Well, Shane, I want to just start by saying thank you so much for carving out some time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks, James. It's an absolute treat. Um, You know, I've been listening to the podcast and, uh, you know, I think you're doing an, an incredible job, an amazing job. I love the sort of array of guests that you you, you get on. And, um, you know, I'm feel, I'm, I feel the humbled to be part of it so um yeah thank you thank you for having me here well i can tell you that when i put the post out that we were going to do this i had such a huge huge response and i would say if i collated the data when i asked people which i'll ask you at the end is there a tv show film you know you recommend band of brothers is comes up over and over and over again. Now, there's a personal connection with Dale Dye for me as well and uh, my attempt to get on that show. But, you know, over and above that, not only was it one of the most beautifully shot TV series ever, but then you add the layer of the real men of Easy Company in there as well. Um, It moved so many people. I'm talking about not only civilians, but military members from all over the world made comments about this. So I am so excited to have this conversation today. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, now you've bigged it up. Now this is going to fall flat. <laughs> <in space. laughs> uh, but you know that is the thing that is you know staggering to me. I, I feel like it's. I mean, it makes sense on one level. I mean, take away whether we did you know a good enough job or not depicting it. But I feel like you know the interest makes sense. You know, it's a period of our history, collective history, and. Um, you know, we as humans, you know, we have a connection to that. Um, but the scale of uh, the response, you know, from, I don't know, just, you know, people in the services, especially, you know, I've been, obviously that has an extra resonance, you know, so if they respond and I've had letters, you know, from various um, uh, service people across the board, um, you know, that that's a real that's a real thing to cherish, but I've also had, you know, university lecturers uh, talk to me about stuff, you know, people in the mental health field, um, paramedics, contemporary paramedics, uh, 
and obviously just 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 fans of the show that are into the into that period of history um you know it's been it's been absolutely mind-blowing uh and when i've been lucky enough to attend a few things through sort of non-profit organizations and and or you know a more sort of um hollywood-esque sort of signing things i suppose um you know, I've just—it's just been so, sort of, so humbling to, to to talk to people about their reactions to to the to the series and what it meant to them. Um, you know, the the, the 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 sort of the level of affection is is staggering, and 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 also it fills in some of the gaps in family history for them as well. You know, certainly people that may may not have spoken about the war you know family members uh it, it kind of gave them a little insight into what you know grandparents may have gone through or something or a father or something you know um or a mother and um I, you know so i so yeah I, I i the scale i will probably still be processing if i reach old age james you know i'll still be processing this thing really in terms of its its seismic impact you know um so I still, even though people will say that uh, or I read about it, perhaps um, I'm, I'm still amazed and, and uh, you know, and, and surprised uh, just just with how it's touched people. I've waffled again, James. I've <laughs> You're waffled. not waffling at all. <laughs> but I think the power of television and cinema for this particular topic, especially, I, I took my little boy to go and see um, They Shall Not Grow Old with Peter Jackson colorized the World War One footage. Yeah, and then they amazing. added actors, added voices to it. And it was incredible. He's a huge fan of Hacksaw Ridge. He's watched uh, Band mm. of Brothers, I think, at least twice with me now, the whole thing. Um, but it's such an important kind of outlet for the next generation to learn about what their you know it's technically great grandparents did and and for us our age group you know that was our grandparents but sadly most of them are you know are passing away now and so mm -hmm. a lot of those stories are dying with them and it's really sad i wish i'd got into podcasting 10 years prior and could have got all of easy company on here and all these other amazing amazing mm -hmm. men and women but um yeah i mean the if we cannot have the real people as, you know, luckily you were able to do in Band of Brothers, then the next best thing is for us to go to the most trusted portrayals of some of those those conflicts and some of those, you know, courageous men and women and learn through that medium instead. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a 21st century way in, isn't it? Uh, it's a good porthole port to, to, do, to do it. And I think that's, that's what I've realized, you know, but certainly in the last maybe 10 years, I think, um, where I really feel like the show has picked up, you know, more so than the first uh, 10. And you, and, and, uh, you know, I've, I've met a bunch of, um, well, kids really, they wouldn't have been alive when it first aired, you know, that have just got in through that and, and, and then, you know, picked up the books and, uh, you know, or have, have explored more online and, and got some of the, you know, you know, a broader sense of the, of, of that period and, and history and, 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 and made the connection, you know, so it's kind of like, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have that, um, I suppose they have that concern that, you know, now we are losing so many of the, of the vets, you know, uh, that, you know, where, where is that continuation going to be 
in terms of remembrance. But I've got to say, you know, and I get out to sort of anniversary things uh, with a lot of the a lot of the fellas, you know. I, I don't see it slacking off. I think any, if anything, it's gaining momentum and, and in all the right ways. You know, I feel like it's, it's something to really admire. Um, the people behind these things as well. I mean, they, you know, they, they really uh, do a great, a great job um, to keep, to keep the flame, to keep the torch uh, alive. And uh, so for us to do whatever we can, you know, whether we are the sort of like the uh, the inadvertent sort of torch bearers in one sense, you know, now the the, the, the vets of themselves have, have passed away, then then along with the actual families, you know, I th- we we don't have a, 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 any beef with that. You know, that's an honour, you know, to do, to, to be, to be, to have that sort of mantle, to have that sort of responsibility. I think it's it's great. So if somebody's getting in, to history through a Rene Le Maire, the Belgian nurse, or, you know, they, they, they see a, a Dick Winters, they see, you know, on TV or whatever, that's their way into learning about it, dressing up like a paratrooper. And then, you know, it's great. And, and I've seen so much of that, that I don't have what I initially thought we might have. Um, I don't have that sort of apprehension that there's a, uh, or worry that there's going to be, a problem with with that going forward i think there's a real there's a real revelry with that era and um especially when i've gone to mainland europe and i've seen um you know obviously not just american you know but canadian british french you know the whole allied sort of field uh, you know there's a real kind of and for the german side you know it's all it's all kind of part of it this this thing that they need to to remember and there's a, an important point to remember you know we don't want to be there again so it's like there's a there's a lesson there are big lessons within this and and um um yeah so i don't feel i feel like we're going in the right direction and uh it's it, I, I don't see it waning at all i think it's uh there are too many people involved keeping the spirit alive yeah no absolutely and i think now more than ever we need to be reminded of all the incredible things that came out of it and as you said all the tragic things so when there's division when there's tyranny you know and you start getting anti-semitism or you know all the other kind of layers of prejudice we have to look back to this is what could happen i mean look you know world war ii is a perfect example when we look at what a leader should look like you know you talk about winston churchill who was by no means an angel you know dick winters you know some so many of these great great leader figures and then we contrast that with now i mean fucking you know Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Boris I mean Jesus Christ talk about <laughs> I don't know how we got there but we're here and it is what it is oh, I don't know how we got there but it's, yeah. it's it's our reality right now so but there's yeah. there's your there's your sign there's the big red flag that's what a leader is supposed to look like this is what we're being given as leaders at the moment and it's not political it's just I don't want history to repeat itself and when I right. see people dividing countries instead of unifying them that terrifies me regardless of yeah, your politics yeah. Right. And with no interest, it seems, no interest to unify, no matter what side you are at, you know, it's where you're planting your flag. You know, there doesn't seem to be an interest in that unified progression, you know. Um, so, yeah, the inspirational leader is, is lacking <laughs> right now, I think. But uh, in, yeah, in, in both places, I think. But, um, but yeah, going back to Dick Winters, I mean, that's a, that's a whole different breed. There's a whole you know that greatest generation thing that you know it's it's a really 
it's a it's it's a really amazing thing to sort of you know read about him and you know after the event i didn't know anything about easy company really i mean i was a big i was into world war ii history i had a great history teacher at school and um and uh i think the first thing actually the first thing i started to learn about was the third reich i was learning about all of the origins there um and then it kind of branched out but you know it was so specific easy company and a, a you know a particular unit there that yeah that that bypassed me but obviously once I was introduced to it, you then you start reading about all of it and um, and going from there and and uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 ridiculous, isn't it? Some of the just just in terms of what they did, how they went about it, and and uh, you know, true truly inspirational as as you know, which of course we don't quite have today, but yeah, I think it's it, it was an eye opener for me for sure. Yeah, and there's so many other things post-World War II that are fascinating. Firstly, I myself kind of bought into the fact that the World War II generation mentally did well because they had ticker tape parades and, you know, you see the iconic photos. But then you take a step back and you listen to to voices of that era and you're like, well, yeah, some people did. If you got on that ship and you returned to Manhattan, that's what you agree with. But, you know, if you return to rural Idaho you know, maybe you didn't get that and you just went back to your room and, you know, and then you had to go get a regular job and all the stuff that you'd done in a completely different country, you just had to bury down. And we saw that from our World War II veterans. And then another thing that I've talked about on here a lot, whether it's, you know, the South in the 1950s in America, whether it's post-Windrush 1950s in, in London, how do you go from fighting prejudice on foreign soil for complete strangers alongside you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen of all colors and creeds, and then come back to your country and beat up people because of the color of their skin or string them up from a tree. That I don't get. And women go back in the kitchen and become, you know, after they were just, you know, iron workers and God knows what. I don't understand that shift too. So again, if we do not learn and analyze these, we are doomed to repeat ourselves. Yeah, it's it's incredible, that, isn't it? Because especially when they're, you know, you know, it's the old country over here. So it was, you know, at that time it was, I mean, I, I remember reading about the, you know, the segregation units in the States and, and certain things of that period, you know, and um, of course it was a kind of a weird thing to be greeted with here when everybody arrived in that kind of, you know, the way we, they were comp- compartmentalized, I suppose. Um, and, and, and not integrated. Um, but, so it was, you know, that 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 was a kind of an eye opener. But I always feel like the social, um, you know, that that social reintegration is always a it, 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 that that's always something that you look at, you know, you try and sort of think. Well, like you say, the infrastructure wasn't necessarily in place, uh, and pe- pe- people struggle now in contemporary terms. But there, at least, there are certain things in place uh, to help um, vets, and I I just think, you know, my my grandfather was like a, uh, he's from Edinburgh and um, he was uh, a prisoner of war in Germany for the best part of five years, actually most of the war. And, um, you know, for him to sort of come back after that and try and sort of, you know, live a, some kind of regular existence was, was just not on the cards for him. And there wasn't anything at all. You know, he just went, back to edinburgh and uh and 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 got into the bottle pretty heavily i mean you know he's from scotland so he liked his whiskey anyway but i mean he was just uh 
you know, according to my mum, you know, it was just like a, it was an horrendous time for him, you know, and, uh, and, you know, the, the drink took him early, you know, way early, but there was nothing there, you know, there was nothing there for him to, no outlet, no platform. And so, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, we're sort of in a, a better place, but there still seems to be a lot that can be done in that, in, in those terms. But, you know, how, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? You, um, you know, you must have what you've done, you know, and what, you, you know, are there things in place for you, you know, and you, the, the people that you've worked with before? I mean, are there groups? Are there, you know, when you retired from service or the, you, whatever, you know, are there, are there things in place that you, that you go to and, or any of your team? No, this <laughs> is the short answer. <laughs> when you retire from the fire service or law enforcement in America, so if, if you you know if you're a veteran and you get hurt, obviously, or you have anything that's related to your service, I believe that qualifies you for the VA. Um, and I think there's Tricare as well, which is I don't know if it's if you weren't impacted or if it's family, but you know you have that umbrella as well. Are either of those perfect systems? No, but there's at least an attempt to take care of them post-service. In law and fire, once you're gone, you're gone. When that door closes and your ID doesn't work anymore, it's like, all right, bye, thanks. Not even thanks, just bye, <laughs> usually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the problem. And then it's only when you transition out of that role, whether you're a soldier or a sailor or whether you're a firefighter or a police officer, and you're you've now lost that tribe that you worked to launch. You've you've lost that sense of purpose. Like you know, your job meant something when you were wearing the uniform. Um, you know that community. That's all taken away, and now you're back at home. You know, with family, alone, whatever that looks like. And you've now got time for all the things that maybe were kind of kept at bay by the excitement of your job and by the the bonding experience of the men and women you worked with. Um, and that is where we see a lot of people struggling. If you look at the Vietnam era, from what I understand, a lot of them now that jump back into some sort of profession are now at retirement age. So now we're seeing an uptick in, in suicides and overdoses and um, because yeah. that was that kind of kept it at bay when they found another community and then they, they transitioned out. So there are a huge amount of solutions, but none of them are really provided to at least in, in first responder professions. A lot of times it's nonprofits or people, you know, luckily mm. look in the right direction and find the right person. But but yeah, we can do so much better for for the military, but especially first responders because they have very, very little support. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, we talked off air about before about this this um, charity and a, and, a, and a sort of a... a they call it the, the the veterans hub that I've started to become connected with. That is a, is a, is a, essentially it's a social cafe for veterans of all campaigns, you know, um, and, of, and of all ages. And, and in fact, not it just, it doesn't stop there. I mean, people that are um, actively serving right now or are thinking about it and it's even broadened out to sort of um, some of the youngsters in the area that are kind of, have been socially deprived uh, they, they you know they're a bit more they're in need and they've been embraced by the hub and i went down there at the back end of, of last year and and saw it for myself and it was a really it was a it was a it was a great thing to witness because 
you know, you had these vets that obviously, as you would know, you know, some, some, some are able to talk uh, more than others about certain things, but those that haven't <clears throat> maybe to their family and close friends outside of the services that they haven't been able to, you know, communicate so much when they get into that environment with, with others, you know, they may not have served directly with them, but there is this common denominator that they all, they've all shared an experience or a set of experiences. So it has been easier for, for those, uh, for those people to, to, to just have a coffee and, and chat about all sorts of stuff. And it doesn't have to be obviously, um, about uh, you know being in in battle or anything but it's but the just just the whole idea of having somewhere that because there was nowhere and there was no support at a, a grander level you know this is a very independently run uh thing with you know fueled by the community spirit and um and and but for me to see it and also for people to be able to talk about their experiences here. I was, you know, I wasn't anybody. I just came in there and, uh, and I'm just talking to a few, a few of the people there and, and, you know, fascinating, great characters, stories to tell, but each and every one of them would, you know, really did sort of validate the importance of somewhere like that, you know, and obviously it wasn't just about a coffee shop, you know, it was, uh, it was, they have these professional professionals on site. They have, an area for therapy dogs, um, you know, massage. Uh, um, there's a, there's a, there's a vegetable patch. There's like a garden and a, a few of the, few of the vets were out there that were green fingered, you know, um, showing me around, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't know what anything was, but you know, that it was, it was great to see them excited. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's almost like rekindling an excitement and an enthusiasm about life, which in their experience, and understandably so, could have been just ripped from them once they got back and, you know, falling into depression and stuff like that. You know, that's what that's going to be the byproduct, that you lose all sense of anything uh, in terms of just, just simple joy going forward. And so what that's done, or I felt it, it was doing, and it, it is doing, is it's it's bringing back those kind of moments, the those those simple joys, um, and collectively, you know, there's again, it's unity. <laughs> we talk about you know those leaders that are not being unifying, but that you know this sort of thing was 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 a place of great unity and great strength as a result of it. Beautiful, yeah, and that's the key. I mean, it's community, it's finding a new tribe, it's creating an environment to be able to storytell. So I had a group of British firefighters on here that have um, Our Blue Light, which is a, a non-profit for emergency responders. There's a group of uh, British police officers that have Surfwell, where they take you know responders surfing. Um, I actually had an amazing one, Tom Hewitt, who's in, he's English, but he's actually in South Africa. Uh, and right. it's surfers, not street kids or street children. Um, and they take children, they teach them how to swim. There's a huge irony to living right by the coast, but believing that there's demons and monsters in the ocean, so they don't swim. So they teach them to swim, they teach them to surf. But again, after that tribal experience of surfing, you've got nature, you've got sunshine, you've got exertion. Then when they're on the beach, 
then, as you said, counselors will come in and they'll start working with these kids because a lot of them are orphaned from HIV and violence and, you know, overdoses and all kinds of things. So, yeah, but there's a common denominator in each one of those, like you said. Firstly, as a leader who actually understands leadership and who brings a community together, makes them feel like they are, you know, a tribe, gives them purpose, and then therefore creates an environment that they feel comfortable to tell stories. And that is where the healing is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a, a no brainer, isn't it, for things like this to to exist in the world, and it's the least, the very least, if the, the world can do, uh, if it seems. But um, but of course, it's 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 a struggle. You know, resources are needed all over the world for stuff like this, and um, um, but you know, at the moment, it's early days for 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 my invo- involvement here, and you know, I should name check Andy Price and Lisa Rushby and the David Ellis charity are part of this whole thing. And, um, and they're down in Dorset, James, which you probably know is a County in the Southwest of England. Um, so just doing their thing, doing their little bit, um, for the greater good, like an easy company almost, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 but it was, it's good to see, you know, um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it leads, but, yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I feel, I feel almost like a. It, it, you do have that imposter syndrome because it's kind of like, well, you know, I'm just a talking prop. I mean, I don't know what sort of what I can do in this in- environment. You know, I'm well out of my depth. I haven't served. You know, uh, but there they were. You know, talking to me about stuff that I just, you know, and and I was in awe. I was in you know, complete and utter awe with everyone um, because, you know, I'm, I'm flying around with sponge, you know, debris hitting my head. It's not going to cut me open, but obviously they've been in situations where very real, you know, and, um, and very scary, you know, so all I had to worry about and all I had to be scared about was if Tom Hanks said that was a pile of shit, let's do it again. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so no contest. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 pleased to sort of be part of something that's. I mean, that's the thing. You know, you're in a show like we touched on earlier. There's a good gateway for kids, especially the younger generation, to get involved and start learning about stuff. That serves its purpose. But then, you know, this this and that means something, obviously. But then. Uh, but this, 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 this is a sort of a. Uh, this has a more profound resonance, you know, to sort of just deal with th- these people at the moment and and try and push on and uh, you know and and again, you know, it's about that is in service of remembrance. This is in service of awareness and keeping that going. You know, absolutely. Well, I'd love to kind of walk through your journey into drama school and then out the other side. You talked about your grandfather coming back from World War II and struggling. I think that multi-generational trauma is a discussion that we don't have you know, enough. We don't identify enough, especially in, in fire and military. We just talk about what we see, what we did, and not about what our childhood was like. So, you know, what was that impact on your mom? And then kind of walk me through your, your early life and then let's go into to, to drama school. Um, well, I think <clears throat> she had a brother and the brother suffered 
on the grandfather's return or her dad's return. Uh, but she was kind of a favorite, I think. Uh, I, it's very sketchy with, with that stuff. I mean, she was, I think she was only maybe 15 when he died, you know, uh, so, and, but she saw enough, she saw enough of those swings, uh, that could happen, the rages that could happen. And, uh, so I guess, yeah, there was a, there's an indelible print on her psyche of what he was, but she had, if there was any of the best of him to be had, then she had it, you know, so it was that flip side uh, for her. Um, but yeah, my, you know, my, I don't know. I mean, my, it's an interesting question. Generational trauma is kind of interesting. I don't know. All I can say, James, is I got lucky. You know, I got lucky. All of that stuff. She didn't take that into motherhood and uh, I'm the only kid. I'm the only child. They wanted more, but you know, um, but I had a tremendous <clears throat> a tremendous group of where I lived was kind of, it was sort of suburban, but sort of rural as well. We backed onto hills and woodlands and stuff like that. And uh, I had so many friends with so many siblings. Uh, it was a real kind of, it was like the gang of Stand By Me, but you multiply that by about 15, you know, girls, boys, the lot. And we were all within like a two or three year age range you know so we were we were we were tight and we were many uh and we didn't cause that much trouble bizarrely <laughs> you know not so much you know we were we were just in in the woodlands and and um you know uh my mum and dad really never saw me i was really outdoorsy um you know loved just loved being around my friends and uh <clears throat> excuse me um yeah, I I don't think, and they were loving parents. You know, my dad's from sort of merchant navy stock, but then he went to into sort of deep sea cargo things. Potentially have brothers or sisters in west in the West Indies, um, but this was before he was married. Uh, but uh, you know, he, um, he he was a, he he was and still is. You know, he's a lovely lovely fella. And, um, you know, if there was a template for fatherhood, he's a good one, you know. Uh, and, you know, so my, th you know, I, I, when I got to, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when I did go to, to, to my drama academy and I started to meet people there, and, and it's a fairly, if you're lucky to get in, you know, it's a sort of a small, there are small groups, small year groups, we were about 15 or 16 or something like that. And uh, you're going around and you're doing all the introductions. You know, it's quite an international flavor, which was nice as well. You know, you're going all around. But you, and you're talking about personal stuff. You know, it's, it's part of the great deconstruction. And then let's see where, let's see how you cope, you know, without any kind of life jacket, <laughs> you know. Uh, but part of that was to kind of disclose, you know, stuff of your history, you know, personal history, family backgrounds. And I was amazed. I was amazed by all bar, maybe two others. Everybody had the most like three act movie 
you know the 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 sort of the 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 trauma of of their early years um you know just just more drama in the first because we were only like late teens and early 20s you know so they had almost like felt to me like they'd already had lifetimes worth of of heavy trauma it seemed you know it was like my god that really happened to you that really happened to you growing up i couldn't believe it you know i felt like everybody had would have my sort of existence you know it was that sort of you know naively i suppose you know i know you get the odd one or two which in my which i was thinking you know was going to be a bad ride but ultimately you know it, it was going to be okay but it wasn't the case i realized i was one of the i was in the minority and and as i've gotten older i've realized that actually yeah i just had a bit of a ticket in terms of my my early years you know growing up and and not feeling uh like i wasn't loved you know which is often the thing about getting into this industry is there's like they always throw that out that there's kind of oh you want the attention you know you didn't get the love or whatever and you want the adoration and all that i'd rather not have that it's not that that's not the reason you know i just wanted a way to be able to sophisticatedly sophisticatedly elongate childhood because i was a great sort of kid who like most you know it was all about imagination it was all about play it was all about creation um and then you had to stop it and i and i didn't i took offense to that james the fire service is the same <laughs> like literally we're having you know like food fights in the station and all of a sudden you have to clean up because you go do an emergency <laughs> then you come back and now it's a far competition in the bay or you know it's it literally is exactly what you're talking about you get to hang from ropes and smash cars up and you know go into burning buildings so yeah you are absolutely preaching to the choir <laughs> Yeah, it's um, you know, so I yeah, I I felt like it was a yeah, I I came, I came from good stock, as they say, I suppose, and um, and uh, you know, life always has its ups and downs, so that's happened, obviously, but it's not, yeah, it's it's it's, uh, you know, going back to that generational trauma, I, I was thinking if it's passed on, I don't, you know, if it came out in other ways, I didn't see it so much, you know, I I just you know from from where my mum came from and. You know, my dad has a lot of, they have a huge family. My dad's like got six sisters and they've all had loads. They just, I can't, I, I don't know how many they've had, but it's, um, and and my grandfather was, uh, it's funny actually with my dad, he, his grandfather didn't serve. He was like a, a big kind of fisherman with trawler ships, you know, and uh, he, so he was part, he was part of the, you know, catch the food for the home front and all that stuff. And also mines in nets that they find, and you have to kind of cut them out and all sorts of ridiculous. You dive down and do all sorts of weird stuff there. But it, my dad, my dad was uh, my uh, one day apparently he was on a bike. He was on a motorbike, I think, and he was he was going home. And this is my grandfather, my dad's dad, and the Luftwaffe. They were coming back from some kind of raid, I guess. I don't know, but they were just. They they saw they saw him and decided to just get a bit of fire practicing fire practice in on the way back and um, and so they 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 shot down at him on on his bike and literally hit the 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 handlebars and the handlebars cracked open and he flew off into like a cornfield or whatever he just you know submerged into that and you know he, i think for the longest time i think he still had the handlebars but he, he that was just uh one of those moments where you think oh my goodness you know 
incredible. I but, can just imagine him in the pub saying, how'd you break your bike? Well, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. <laughs> there I was. <laughs> there I was. Yeah, there I was. You know, it's funny. My dad was saying that, you know, I said, well, why didn't you, you know, ever go into that? Because he was always about the, the, the Merchant Navy. And he, he was saying, well, you know, I went on a ship with 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 my dad, you know, and, he, and he, his best friend was called Alec. And... uh you know, obviously there was a big pub culture, you know, there still is a pub culture in Britain, as you know, James, but, um, but back in the day, there was a whole community and, and, and that was where, you know, HQ would be after a day's work. But before they got into that and sank a few pints and then would just talk for days, they would obviously go out into the, onto the, into the sea and, and do their, put in their graft. But my dad went out early on thinking you know okay i see what this is all about and get some pocket money or whatever and then uh he, he said he's my dad was saying and it was just i just knew i wasn't cut out for any of this i just i mean i you know i'm a sea dog i'm just not that kind of sea dog and he said that when he went out there his dad was like you know driving the ship or whatever alec was out in the back with some nets or something and there was just nothing now these are best buddies they're not saying a word to each other now my dad's kind of in the middle of it doing stuff. I'm picking nets or tying up nets or something. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, my granddad was a larger than life sort of character. You know, you really couldn't understand too much. He was one of those classic, those types, you know? And so my dad would say, all of a sudden, you know, my, my dad would go, then Alec (laughs) back would go, hoi, hoi. So it's inaudible. You could, it was not, you couldn't make out the word. It was just noise. And my dad's looking at Alec and he's looking back. It's like, a, my dad's looking back at Alec. So it was always an echo. Alec would always echo whatever the sound was. And it would mean something, you know, so it'd haul in or throw something out of the ship, you know, or the boat. And my dad's like, okay. Okay, this is this is an interesting communication, and uh, and this went on for you know fifteen twenty minutes just like that. But it meant something, and it, and things were happening. So and then quiet, there'll be nothing, and then it'll get to a break. They'll go smoke a cigarette, have some tea or coffee or whatever, and uh, they just sit. My dad would be sitting in the middle of them, deathly silent, just quiet as you like, just nothing, nothing at all, you know. Then my granddad would clink something and up they get again. And that would be the, so you all days like that, you know, so they come home and uh, my, my dad's like pulling his hair out, you know, after that. And then, you know, they'd go to the pub or it'd be, it'd be invited to go into the pub and then they'll get into that sinker, you know, a pint or whatever. And they could, and then they wouldn't stop talking. It would just be like, everything would just switch on and that would be that, you know, but it was a really bizarre, you know, bizarre thing. But yeah, my dad was definitely not cut out for that. He wanted a bit more adventure, a bit more communication, I suppose. And um, so he went deep sea instead. But uh, and I don't even know why I said that story. But it, it was just, yeah. But that, but you know, if there was any trauma for him, that was about the level it was at. That was that was all. It was just this ridiculous, you know, caveman esque thing. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, and that wasn't his thing. But, yeah, I suppose, 
yeah, my 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 backstory is pretty 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 fairly straightforward and not you know it's only when I started getting into the industry, James, that the real drama happened, you know, uh metaphorically and literally. <laughs> well it's funny with with the conversation with your granddad and his friend because it reminds me of the west country where i grew up where it's almost yeah. like they had a wheelbarrow full of consonants they got to swindon it dumped over and they're like ah oh, fuck it right me how's it going it's great lush isn't it what i'm sorry what <laughs> and i grew up with the you know the rp you know my parents were quite posh and then i yeah. went to secondary school and everyone you know had a west country accent so we all sound like pirates for a while and <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it's hilarious yeah. because my my father-in-law to this day, excuse me, my father-in-law, my my stepfather, um, he's got thick, thick, thick West Country accent, and you know I'm right. fluent in English and West Country, so I'm bilingual, so I can understand yeah. him. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but it is, it's just a bunch of vowels that you have to try to kind of sift through and work, find words. Yeah, it's cute. It's cute, man. I like it a lot. You know, um, and and that you know he he was definitely one. That was, uh, you know, hard as nails as well. I, I remember that, but such a loving guy, you know. Um, you know, I caught it. Well, he was, he was the cod father, you know. He was like, it was not, it, I don't think they actually caught cod. I don't, I don't think that was what their thing was, but that's what, because he was literally like the leader type of that particular market. I remember that. And he would pay people off with like police with, with fish. You know, he's like, that was his currency. You know, he just had it for everybody. And then he could, you know, uh, he would get, you know, the chairman of, he got me into, because I'm a bit of a Liverpool fan from old, I don't know, you know, Liverpool connection, I'm not from there, you know. But uh, my my granddad got me into so many games because he ended up, not, don't know how, but through fish, of all things, he could be able to sort of, you know, get, have influence and 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 uh, get me tickets for all sorts, off all sorts of VIPs, you know. Um, uh so he was, you know, he was one that was, uh, yeah, I, I, I think back fondly uh, of. And, um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, so that was it. It was fairly straightforward and fairly uneventful. Well, in terms of, like, you know, high drama. And, and um, uh, you know, I, but I didn't, but theatre was not a uh, thing you could do from, from my neck of the woods, you know. It was a fairly working class type of area and, uh, you know, anything artistic was to kind of be frowned on or it was extracurricular and it was kind of, you know, groups that were just forming outside of school or whatever. There were not any courses. And and then I ended up going to college to be uh, a journalist. You know, I was going to be, I was going to be that. And then, it, and then I sort of, um, this was the step before the drama academies, but there was somebody in college. It was an English English lecturer I had, and she had this drama group that was outside this youth, this youth theatre group. And she said, "You know, come and try out." And I, so I did. I realised that that was a, a way of being able to, you know, uh, keep keep a foot in. And um, and that was really, I think, that was the time that I felt like you know, there, there might be a way of being able to explore this more seriously. Um, and I was building up, they, they were really, they were a smart theatre group run by Stella Critchley and Daryl Brown. And, and, and they were really, really influential. They did a, they chose well, they had great taste in what they were doing. And, and I think through that, I was just learning all the time with them. So productions were, you know, 
through an average year, we may have got through three, four, perhaps, uh, you know, um, but big, big productions, you know, classic as well as contemporary. And all the while, I'm st- sort of building up a youth theatre resume, a sort of CV that is that my my roles were getting bigger. Uh, and then, you know, you, you're, you're playing the big, the big, big roles, you know, classical and otherwise. And and all of that really helped, I think. Uh, and from and again, through through Stella's, uh, you know, influence, she was saying to me, well, I think to take this on, you know, you're not don't necessarily go the sort of university route for degrees in theatre management, but go do the pragmatic stuff. You know, there are academies out there. I knew about RADA and Central. They were two kind of two big famous places over here. But then there were other ones. And there was this one in particular called Weather Douglas, which is as old as more or less as, along with RADA, it's one of the oldest places. And I got the prospectus from from there. And I really loved it. And I thought, okay, uh, let's, 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 let's have a go at this. And, um, and I did it early enough. So if it didn't work out, I still had time to, to apply for others but I, you know I got in and that was it I was like I'm not gonna I don't even want to see if I can get into you know a rod or anything like that I mean, this was the place that I really liked I really responded to uh you know Terrence Stamp went there Angela Lansbury went there uh Christopher Reeve uh, Eva Green who's more of a recent I suppose um Anthony Cher great theater man you know it, it just it just ticked all the boxes for me. The only problem was it was a lot of money, you know. And um, again, you know, when you're from the working class, working class background, it's a difficult thing. It's not it's not a working class sport, James. And so uh, we had a problem there. You know, getting in was one thing. It's like okay, now what do we do? And um, the the because it wasn't where I was from at the time. The, you know, I was living in Kent uh, at that point, and it was just the county. Would they were not again? It wasn't about that particular area and that corner at that time, they were not big on supporting these kind of artistic endeavors, you know, uh, especially at that sort of those prices, you know? So that was a, that was a difficult one. And that, and then, so my parents were like willing to put up the house, you know, willing to sell, sell the house. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. If you want to talk about support and how I got lucky, you know, well, just to interject. Cause I mean, when you have the, you know, the impression of the manly man, merchant, seaman, you know, <laughs> and and then, you know, you're someone to go to drama school because I went to drama school for a year and I saw my parents' reaction. <laughs> it was less than favorable. <laughs> you know, you kind of immediately flashed to the Zoolander mine scene. <laughs> so but you had the <laughs> you had the polar opposite uh, effect where your parents are willing to put their house up to put you through school. I think this is the thing where, you know, you've got to remember that I was named after the Western. So Shane, the Allen lad Western in 53, my dad is a Western nut. You know, he loves all that stuff and movies when he was, I mean, he didn't perform. He's a great singer. He's a great crooner, but he, uh, he didn't do anything theatrical, but movies all the time, you know, even in his Navy days and he's kind of, you know, setting up stuff and projectors and he still has like 16 millimeter projectors. He loves screening things. So, there is a correlation there. And I think, you know, uh, but just to see, you know, your kid get enthused about anything, you know, is, is from his perspective, it was like, that's, he's found something, you exactly. know? So, um, and you know, my mom, although she's not theatrical, well, I say that, I mean, if she's got a few drinks down her, she once reenacted the death scene of Bonnie Parker 
in Bonnie and Clyde in a restaurant. So I'm <laughs> on the table. <laughs> so again, if you're looking for threads, maybe there is, you know, I've, I've overlooked that. Um, but I think, and, and, and she believes she's a singer, but she's completely tone deaf. She, she would admit that, but that doesn't stop her belting it out, which I love. And, uh, in fact, I've got many four-track studio recordings of her doing that after a, 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 a Pinot Noir. But, um, you know, so those were the things. They, but they were willing to do that. And then, so that was great. But, of course, for me personally, you know, it was a family home and uh, it wasn't something that, that was plaguing me. You know, I didn't want that to happen. Uh, it was a place that I liked to go, you know, I would because I was, I was going to have to move to London, but it was like, I, you know, that, that was the place I wanted to go and return and see my mum and dad. You know, I didn't want them to move in somewhere else. And so it became a thing where we got a, a, the, the, the drama Academy, Weber Douglas got a scholarship uh, uh, lead and they sent me that. And it was like a, a scholarship for Sir Cameron McIntosh, who's like the impresario behind a lot of the big, most of the West end musicals that people go and see to this day, you know, um, they had a scholarship there was one male and one female bursary and it was up for grabs and it meant me going to the West End and the Albury Theatre I think and performing a, a couple of pieces there and then you know with a whole bunch of people and then in the afternoon you would have to go and interview like this huge banquet table of people I couldn't even see down the other end you know firing questions and it was a really nervy day, you know, because it was a big break between those things. You perform your, your stuff and then it's just you, you hang around London for a while. And, you know, my dad was with me and we we're sort of walking around and and sitting on a load of, you know, just sitting on bench after bench, uh, you know. Uh, and then we, we we had this thing. And then it was two weeks. I think it was t- like two weeks later or something like that, that I got this thing through. They happened to be in France and they were with some friends on a little holiday break. And I got the call to say, you know, you don't have to do anything. Take the sign out of the garden thing out of the yard. They're paying for it all. They're paying for it all. And not only that, they paid me this really healthy maintenance for every like semester or term, you know, that they were going to give me a decent grant that I could live, you know, because it meant London. And, it, and, and where Weber, Douglas, I mean, they were right in the heart of Kensington. So if you know that James, you know, it's like a prime zone one territory. And so it, it's, it's, it, again, it's, it ain't cheap. So you, so, so it was a real eye opener for me, this sort of rustic kid going into there and landing there, you know, to do the, to do the training. And, and, uh, but, you know, with that relief that my parents didn't have to do, because they're still there to this day, you know, they're still in the same place, you know, so it's like a, so I'm just so pleased that it all worked out in that way. And, um, and, and, and I could do the training, um, you know, fairly relaxed. Although I say, that, you know, the training itself and what we had to do and get up to was pretty intense. You know, it was hardcore. And as I'm sure you would know in certain things that you have to do. And uh, uh, yeah, you know, deconstruction, deconstructing was their thing. And, you, and a part of it was to see if you could, you know, just survive without necessarily being being built up. And I think that was a good exercise, actually. I mean, a lot of people at the time were like, this is sadistic. But, you know, I feel like there was, um, it was a, a precursor to you sort of getting out there and facing up to a lot of rejection, you know, and how do you respond to that? 
psychologically, you know, um, because people have different ways, even in rejection, people have different ways of, 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 of handling it in terms of, you know, companies or individuals, you know, um, dispensing that upon you. There's good ways of doing it and there are bad ways of doing it. And you're going to experience most of those, you know, and then how do you deal with it? How do you get on? How do you pick yourself up and go on and, and do that, you know, um, theatrically. So I, I felt like drama Academy was good for that really. Um, uh, and you know, it was another great, the, the, the biggest thing about it all. And I think I'm probably talking too much without you coming in, <laughs> but I think that the, uh, the best thing about the drama academies, because I met, I've met a lot of amazing actors, uh, you know, female and male, all, all, all the way along this journey, is that the drama academy, the, the accredited academies have a really good, they're a really good platform for exposure. Um, it's like having good agents or good management on the outside. You're going to get into the inner circle and see all the best stuff, you know, Um and with those accredited academies and schools, we were attended in our finals year for productions and showcases. You know, 90% of the in, uh, audience were industry. And I don't think anybody really didn't. I don't think there was anybody that kind of got out of there with and, and, and you know, without being represented. You know, it was like, a, it was that. I, I managed to get a, a signed up a year early. But um, so I was, again, I was fairly relaxed about the last year because I knew what I was going to do. I knew I was, I was in good hands, but um, that was the, that was the thing that would, that really separated, um, you know, the, just that platform, that, that ability to be exposed in front of the right people. Cause there are, there are many people doing, doing great work, James, and nobody's seeing it, you know? <laughs> so, so it's a, Unless I put it on YouTube, I, was like, I don't know, but you know what I mean. It's uh, so that was good. So that was my that was my uh, academy experience. I think I leapt forward there massively, didn't I? I leapt forward there. No, no, it was perfect. Actually, it puts us exactly where we need to be. I think. Um, so I think we graduated about the same time. Mine was a, a one year diploma course, um, and you know, so and then there was a, a parallel three year um, acting class and. I'd gone to that one, I think I told you in our previous conversation, following a girl, which maybe is not the most powerful (laughs) why. Um, But so I came out the other side, um, was using, I think it was PCR, the red kind of casting sheet that came around. And there was a show called Band of Brothers that they were looking for people. Um, and And now as we have this conversation, I realize that the only reason that you got the role and I didn't is because I am a fucking awful actor. But that's the only separating point. Otherwise, I would have smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm, the way you, you you present yourself, I I I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I I beg to differ. I'm, I'm I'm sure you got the chops, and it was just a case of you know, I, you know what what are the reasons? You know, there comes a point when you, I don't know. Again, I'm leaping ahead here, but when when it came to sort of picking the Belgian nurse, when it came to picking Renee Lemaire. I had the uh, luxury of looking at some of the final tapes the director let me see who was in the running. So it hadn't properly been cast, but you were down to like six or seven, if that. Every one of those, tremendous, amazing. 
you know, you get to that point. And I don't know how many went up for it, but, you know, you get to that point, everybody's good. How do you decide? I mean, you know, Lucy Jean, who ended up playing her, was magnificent. And I really, really, she she was the closest uh, resembling her as well, I think, that I remember. And, and she was spectacular. I love Lucy, but I love Lucy. But, um, she, you know, it's really, you know, it's really difficult. I don't know what they got. I don't know what they go on. I mean, it's just, you know, there were so many, you know, you get to a certain point where you've got, you've got too much choice. And um, so I'm always, you know, it comes down to whatever that is at the point at the, you know, it's like me getting a place uh, or winning a scholarship. You know, you just have to be hit it at a certain point. And, 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 you know, as long as you've prepped, you've put the work in and then you've got to have a little bit of luck, you know? So I think it's, there's no getting away from that, you know. Um, so, I, you know, don't don't ridicule your acting ability, James. No, just, trust me, my <laughs> acting is terrible. I, I've got many, many people who testify for me. But when I was on that path, we had stage combat, and stage combat, I excelled at, and so that took me down the the path of stunts. So that I will, you know, I will say in the stunt world, I think at the skill set that I have, you know, that was where I was good at. But no acting, I am. Um, Probably one of the worst. I mean, I've seen some movies where I'm like, oh, I could have probably probably been in that one. That was horrendous. But aside from that, like good good acting. Um, <laughs> it's just it's just not my my thing. And I tell people with with fire service, you know, like not everyone's supposed to be a firefighter. James Gearing is not supposed to be an actor, and I made that fully aware after a year of drama school. <laughs> you know, I always try and be. You know, you you got to be try. You got to somehow in this profession. I feel I feel like you got to be motivated. You know, inspired by the good obviously and that's easy but motivated by the bad because there's plenty of that going on you know and i don't begrudge anybody trying to make a a go of it in this industry you know it takes that takes a lot of courage you know so i so i'm not sort of saying they shouldn't but i'm just saying that there is this level you know things are getting made and you think how on earth did that happen how did that, how did that get green lit you know how are the, how are they doing that you know how how are they being in it but you know there's all sorts of there's all sorts of political machinations, which I'm not going to go into now, but, and I don't want to seem like a bitter actor, but it's because I, like I say, I mean, I think if I see bad stuff, it's like, well, if they've got a place at the table, <laughs> reserve me a seat. You know, I'm not asking to be at the head of the table, but I'm good enough to have it. If that's getting on, you know, and that's kind of the thing. So then you go on and then hopefully something comes through and you go, yeah, you know, yeah. The training wasn't nothing, you know, and so you can go and you can go and play, you know. But uh, it's a weird thing, you know. I think we, I said, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but and this is not a great analogy, and I thought, but I'll throw it in there anyway. I feel like in this thing, it's like, you know, that that Victorian kid with his his face pressed up against the glass of a toy store, toy shop, you know, and there are people playing in there, and you're just you're desperate, you're seeing it happen, people are doing it, and you're thinking, ah, oh, I'd love to play in there, you know. And then every once in a while, you know, a benign sort of shopkeeper will come in, open the door, get you out of the cold, allow you to play with a few things, and you hope that you play nicely. You hope you do your thing, you know. Sometimes you do, sometimes you, you know, you drop a few things and, you know, didn't work out. But, but then, you, you know, you're ushered back out and you're that working class kid from the sticks, James, is just with his face pressed up against the glass again. And that's just kind of what, the way it is in this profession, you know, unless you have a sort of a a stellar career but you know the the jobbing actors uh, and voiceover people like myself you know that's that's kind of what it is but again it comes back to that drama academy thing and 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 being able to sort of 
I suppose, uh, you know, is it having a raw hide or just being, you know, a Muppet? I don't know. I mean, one <laughs> of the, a combination of both, really. Just keep on keeping a, on. A Muppet with a raw hide. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I took away so much from that as well. And I think that's important. My stepson did a, a firefighter mentorship program they have here. And it was beautiful because he realized he didn't want to be a firefighter. Awesome. Amazing. You took away some skills, I'm sure, that will serve him well in the future. And that's what I have. I mean, here we are having a conversation now. I'm sure some of the voice elements and speech elements and, you know, performance elements factored into yeah. removing some of that anxiety from talking to other people, you know, regardless yeah. of their background, fame, status, whatever. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the thing. I think just because maybe you didn't follow that natural path down a course or a class or a profession doesn't mm. mean it was a waste. You just have no, to take a step yeah. back and go, okay, I'll keep these bits. You know, you go in the toy shop, I'm going to keep this car and this ball, but <laughs> those dolls, I don't need them anymore. And I'm going to, and I'm going to walk out and go press my face again. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, and it is amazing, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, you may have, you may well have done what you're doing now with, with just by being in the, you know, fire service and paramedic life and all that kind of stuff. But there has to be something I'm sure within what you've done, you know, chasing the girl, but getting into that, all that other stuff, that has enabled you, you know, to be able to be in this position, to be able to present a certain way, you know, and and now, you know, with the more you're doing it, obviously, it's you know, you're 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 a natural, sir, you know. So it's like a, um, it it it's weird, isn't it, how things like that can can come through, and 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 whether you sometimes you just, you know, it's a subconscious thing almost. You just you just it just happens, and uh, but it all has a place. It all has a value, I think, um, you know, for sure, and so. Yeah, but I, you know, uh, in in terms of yeah, you know, being on that show, I think everybody went up for that show, James. Everybody, you're not one of those people that didn't get out, didn't make it. It's like everybody went up for it and everybody got it. No, I mean there were so many that went up for it and didn't get it. I mean, I I've got cousins like that went up for it. I didn't even know, you know. I mean, what are you even? You're not even an actor. What you? What do you mean you went up for it? You know, went up for something in it. You know, they were like, well, if James Gearing can put his name in, I can too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, but I mean, yeah. what an amazing project though on British soil. I mean, geez, you know, when it comes to to film, and and we had no idea the magnitude of what it was actually going to be, but just something based on a war that was so prevalent at that time when we were younger. You know, in our family's you know history, I think it had everyone that was even remotely into drama excited. Yeah, I mean, my great aunt, my, I got a family, a strange family, a, a strange really. I don't not for any kind of weird family politics or anything it just happened but i have two great aunts that they married gis you know so they took off and i think they're in like the santa barbara area somewhere and um and i often think you know if only there was a sort of a relationship there when i was doing it at a time because that is obviously a, a, a prime resource to tap into you know if they were you know around um but uh, you know i did i didn't have the luxury although we had many vets um, that were around, obviously, to do to do that at the time, um, which was the, which I think, you know, we wouldn't have the luxury to do the same sort of thing today. It'll be a, you know, it'd be a slightly different experience. I mean, we were very lucky back then. Um, you know, my character, and again, I'm jumping ahead, I, I suppose, James, but you know, my my character of Doc, you know, was not alive. I think, but it was. You know, we're only talking about a couple of years, I think. I think it was 98 at some point he passed away. Um, 
and there was a great picture of him with Stephen Ambrose. I think one of the sort of later reunions that 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 Eugene did attend. You know, because I don't think he was a attending. I don't think he was a. Uh, I didn't. I don't think he attended that many, but certainly towards the end, you know, he he, he did. And and um, so there's this great picture of the two of them just chilling out, you know, talking. And and the, and then of course, you know, two years later, we're sort of we're boot camping it, getting ready for the for the shoot, you know. So. Um, so that was a shame. I mean, that was, that was just, you know, selfishly, that was a shame for me, you know, cause I saw some of the great, uh, partnerships that were kind of developing with actor and, and real vet, um, uh, you know, elsewhere and just the extra ingredients that were able to be sprinkled upon, upon what they were doing, you know, um, it wasn't. It wasn't as. It wasn't as though I completely missed out. I mean, obviously, people knew who my guy was, so they all had stories that they would relay to to me or to the actor that you know, the actor that was playing them or whatever. And then the actor would come to me, and Frank John Hughes and while Bill Garnier would say some stuff, you know, um, yeah, Ralph Spina, who was a, who was alive, he was Rose assistant medic. He features Tony Devlin plays him in and plays him very well, I think, uh, in, uh, in Bastogne, you know, Ralph was really good at being able to send me some stuff and newspaper clippings and pictures and just what the kind of job entailed at the time, you know, um, that was invaluable. Uh, HBO had a great research team, uh, that supplied a lot of production material. <clears throat> I did end up calling up, uh, Rose, uh, widow <laughs> and that was uh you know who's this guy with a strange accent i'm not going anywhere near that you know and and i don't blame her i don't blame her for not coming anywhere near me i mean it was you know it seemed ridiculous at the time you know to sort of say hey there's this multi-million dollar whatever you know it's going to be it's going to be about you know your husband's going to be part of it and i'm going to be playing him and this is tom hanks and spielberg obviously people would know those but it's just you know it hadn't been done i don't you know it, you, to the scale on TV, something like that, you know. Um, so, you know, I realized that that was a bit of a dead end, but there were no hard feelings and I let her get on. And it was just a case of, you know, building up a picture of, of, of the character and of the, I mean, it's weird calling them a character because it sounds like it's a fictional, I mean, to a certain degree, I guess, you know, they, they write it a certain way, but um, let's just call him doc, you know, so the picture of doc and, and, and then, you know, working out how you were going to sort of uh, uh, execute it. And I, I realized that the pre-shoot drinks that, you know, the budget for this thing was going to be off the, off the scale. And I think uh, the responsibility of, you know, playing a part and representing a family was one thing, but then obviously they're plowing all of this money into it. Uh, you know, they're, they're, the pressure was there, I suppose. But I weirdly, I, I mean, others will probably talk about that, you know, feeling that great pressure in that sense. But I, I didn't really. I don't know why. I, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. I, I felt the pressure doing the sort of the, the, the sort of seven hundred auditions or whatever it was. I mean, we had a ton of those, and it was not necessarily kind of bedded down who I was going to be initially. You know, we were all given all sorts of roles to sort of, you know, I think there were only, a, there were a couple of like Nixon and Spears 
a couple of the uh, parts had, you know, some monologue type things in, which was a good way of just getting you to sort of, you know, play a scene. Uh, not necessarily you were going to be that soldier, you know. Um, they just wanted to see what you could do. And then they would triage out, you know. I, I do remember Doc, you know, it came early on and it stuck. So whatever I was doing in and around Doc, I would always end up reading something from from him. And it never let up. I, you know, that just kept going on. There were a few detours along the way, but that was the one. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, um, I've, I've, I've lost my foxhole, James, what we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we were initially going to lead into that. Um, but that was beautiful because you gave some insight into, you know, what we're going to talk about. I would love to hear about, you know, you, you kind of touched on the audition process then. So you're reading other roles, you kind of got honed into, to Doc's role, um, Talk to me then about getting that position and then boot camp because you talk about this crazy journey that drama school sent me. It ultimately ended up in Australia auditioning for Terminator 2 to open a brand new theme park in Japan. And we <laughs> went to a boot camp run by a guy called Captain Dale Dye, who in my conversation oh. after was like, oh, you should have, you, you would have been great in Band of Brothers. And I, I said before, back then I was still somewhat blonde, blue eyed. So I'm sure it would have been a Nazi. <laughs> Wasn't quite what I was looking for, but I'll take it. But regardless, you know, I got to meet the man who put you guys through boot camp. Um, and ultimately I had him on the show. He was episode 35. Uh, amazing conversation, amazing insight into what you went through. And then his wife, Julia, as well, came on. Yes. So talk to me yeah. about that. I mean, you know, you have all these actors, you know, none of you really know each other very well. You're in this production that's exciting, but as you said, not really ever done before on television. So walk me through getting the role and then the boot camp and then into production. Well, that... I mean, the, the, I can't remember meeting anybody from the cast that went on to be in it during the run of my auditions. And I think, I, 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 you know, sometimes they try and keep you away from other people to make it just so like you feel like you're the only one up for it sometimes. I think this was too, too vast, too big for that. So there were definitely people that I remember seeing in waiting rooms and we're going in, but I can't really remember anybody during the phase of going back and going back again. I was doing a dinner theatre thing i was actually employed at the time of going up for the show and it was uh you know a very light-hearted sort of rompy comedy light-hearted comedy it was like a neil simon-esque but not not necessarily that um and that was kind of good and i felt like that was that was it didn't get in the way in fact it helped immensely because it was you know i was working every night uh so i was keeping the machine oiled and so when I would come in for notes from the director, maybe for to take on board to, to then play the, the show that night, you know, after the notes, I'd sort of go into the dressing room or go in somewhere, go into a space somewhere and look at the latest sides, pages to read that would be the audition piece for, for Band of Brothers, you know. And they were constantly being sort of given out and whatever as we were going on, you know. So it all helped. It all kind of... I felt like that it all boded well to sort of going into the room and then delivering something. And at that age, I suppose, you know, I don't know. It's that old fearlessness. I did, I just didn't, you know, I, there's something about the experience of you've just got to, 
the external blocks trying to block out all that it's not about the work and doing the work because you know if you the self-belief isn't the thing that gets shifted around but confidence can ebb and flow if that makes any sense and those external blocks and the pressure of the high production and this exec and this big casting name and then you've got tom hanks and then you've got spielberg all of those things not their fault they're just they're the names you know but you can those kind of things can get in your sphere and and be not very helpful. It's nothing to do with the work and whether you think you can play the role, but it can sort of like bump up against it and make it a bit turbulent, more turbulent than it needs to be. For some, so so there was a bit of that. You did, that was an acting exercise in itself, but that's what I mean. Though that was kind of a more of a sort of a, a pressure to get rid of that than when I was actually on set doing it. It's like now your butt is on the line because this is what's going to be presented to the world. I'm much more relaxed when it comes to being on, on thing, on the set, you know, doing it with the actors and, and when the heat is really on, you know, weird warped thing that, but anyway, so I end up doing several. I end up getting detoured a little bit. We went, I, I read for something that <clears throat> I think I can, I think I've said this before and, and I think I can say this. I mean, it's been years, but, you know, so Tom Cruise was doing some sort of thing about West Point. And, I, um, and there, was a, it was a, there was a point during my reading that I was given this thing that was in development. And I don't know whether he was going to produce, direct or both or whatever. And I started to read for one of the leads there. So completely not Band of Brothers related, but it seemed to be connected to, to, to the same people, you know. I felt, I felt it went okay, that one as well. You know, I was sort of in the zone then. Um, but I did I did have that feeling like, oh, you know, I don't want to be, hope this is not, you know, going to get in the way of what I'm going through with this particular project. Because this was a project that I was sort of falling in love with every time I was going in, you know. And, and you get a feeling as an actor, you know, when things are close and that they may like you, you know. And that's a good thing because that gives you confidence again, you know, to sort of deliver stuff. And then, so then, but then that happened and then I went on and, uh, and of course it all led up to the big Athenaeum or Athenaeum hotel in Piccadilly circus. And I know that Frank and uh, probably Ron and some others in LA, they had the experience of Spielberg being in the room and filming and all this sort of stuff. Well, we had Tom in London full castaway mode, obviously. So I didn't, nobody recognized him, you know, at that point. Um, but no Wilson, he left that behind. And so he was just, he was just, he was just there with a bunch of uh, execs. Uh, Tony Toe was a very influential sort of partner really with, with, with him in the, in the, in the, in the company. And he was, Tony went on to, uh, not only was he a sort of producer, but he directed as well an episode in, in the show. Uh, you know, that was the, that was the moment where it was solely row at that point And, uh, you know, d doing it in front of, of everybody. And then I remember that <clears throat> there was a point where Tom got off, he got, he, he had a satchel bag or something and he, he lifted it off himself and he, he just hand, I'm, I'm doing the scene and he's handing me it during the scene. And I just have to sort of, I just took it and just carried on doing whatever I was doing. But then that became, I must've maybe tried to, I was doing something perhaps like miming something. So then he gave me the prop. And then the, I'm working with the prop 
managed to work with the prop all right, I guess, and uh, not bump into anything. And, and so I came away feeling like I, I did, I did all right. I did all right. You know, it's either, you know, and it's horrible feeling coming away from something and feeling like you didn't. That's, that's awful. You know, there's, uh, you know, especially if you're in something like this, when you're going on and on. And I mean, it is quite unique that I went on so long for this, but it, it, you know, there are other things I've been on where you feel like, oh, you're getting close, you're getting close and it doesn't, you know, you screen test for something, you get to that point. And I've been there before where you become, you know, you end up being the bridesmaid and you go, oh my God, you know, and that didn't work out. But you know, I mean, in those situations, I've sort of gone out of the room thinking, oh my God, you know, that's, that wasn't the one. And there's a sense, there's like a Jedi feeling you have. Uh, and it normally plays out. Sometimes you feel like, well, I don't know how I got that because that audition was terrible, but they're rare. Normally your instincts are all in tune, you know, and you can feel it. And, but I came, so I came away from that thinking, well, I did what I know I could do uh, and felt good about it. And uh, I walked around London for miles aimlessly. I didn't know where I was going. I was just working. Well, that's a lie. I didn't know where I was going, but I was kind of, there was no destination. I was buzzing. I was just, I was just the adrenaline had to go somewhere. And, um, but then I didn't, I can't remember. I don't know how long it was. It seemed like an age, uh, you know, uh, I was, I remember I, I was driving my dad's car, I think, or something like that. Um, agent called up and said, are you, you know, are you, where are you? Are you sitting down somewhere? I said, well, I'm, well, I'm in the, you know, I was on the phone, obviously not allowed, but I, I sort of said, well, I'm driving, you know, she said, well, if you pull over, just get somewhere, just pull over. And instantly I'm thinking she's got something to, good to tell me and it's and i'm sure and i think it's about that but i wasn't trying to let that i needed to pull over first and then you know sink the energy up to be able to absorb what she was going to say and um and then she put out in fact in fact it was the funniest thing she said to me didn't turn out to be true at all but she the funniest thing the way she broke it to me was uh uh okay i'm parked what's the news she said Typical agent, really. You're rich. <laughs> that was the first thing, <laughs> which is, which was, let me, let me go on record now. It, it was not that. I mean, it was very well paid. They looked after me, but you know, uh, I was a sort of like dinner theater, couple of TV jobs. I was a broke actor. So in terms of, it's all relative. My rich, you know. Uh, Richard so, Branson so, would be like, no. Nah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was the thing that's how she broke it to me so i knew what she was talking about and um but then of course the part of the part of the reward and it was a reward you know was to be able to partake in this this boot camp experience you know you, you had to do this thing uh which again would you know when you especially when you're a younger actor you know it's like yeah that sh shit you know is just part of it and you want to just you want to just uh be enveloped by it all and you just want to commit wholeheartedly nothing else matters you just want to get into it and um but there was an issue the fact that i still had this theater i was still doing this play you know and, and part of the thing was that this boot camp was still was going to hit when i had at least two weeks more to run so that was a little uh a, a little uh a sticky to to be honest um and uh but then the great Meg Lieberman and HBO, they sort of got involved and they were kind of sort of saying, Hey, you know, what are you, what are you thinking? You're going to not, you know, you're not going to let this guy do it, which is, you know, this great opportunity and all this sort of stuff. And I think they, they flexed a bit of muscle. I think they, they may have, 
paid them something. I don't know what it was. I mean, my role wasn't great. It wasn't a huge role anyway. So, um, you know, I wasn't a, a massive miss, but uh, the director was sort of a friend of mine. He directed me at my drama academy uh, and I felt, you know, bad about that. And he was a little sore, but then obviously everything worked out and, uh, and I got to go to boot camp, you know. Um, <clears throat> but as I say, I mean, I didn't see anybody from, from the cast during any of those, uh, any of those um, rehearsals at Sorry Auditions. And then the first person I think I saw when I got to, when I was being picked up to go to boot camp, I think was Scott Grimes. I think Malarkey, uh, Scott who played Malarkey, I think he was the, I think he was the very first person that, that I saw. Um, and, uh, you know, and then we, you know, we, we kind of assembled and, uh, and then, you know, that's when Dale came into the picture and, uh, and his sort of, you know, the cadre and the, the people that he had with him in, in Warriors Inc. at the time were so, uh, you know, Dale quite rightly gets the press. He's a great speaker. He's a great all-rounder. But those people that he assembled, you know, and that, that was a that was a, a, a talented maneuver as well. You know, he 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 picked the right people that could really rip you in half, and uh, but also with great with great uh, they had every one of them had sort of great humor. I remember and that was part of it. You know, so if you needed to have a sort of release of tension, they could do it with a turn of phrase or just some kind of slapsticky thing. I don't know, silly thing that you felt like, oh, God, great, you are human, you know, <laughs> not just this, you know, Terminator 2 type thing that was going to come for you and just, you know, destroy you. It was just, uh, you know, it was, so I, the balance was there. And I think for a lot of us, not all of us, but for, for uh, you know, a lot of us were into or played sports and did stuff. I was a big footballer at the time or soccer player, you know, uh, so I, uh, the, the fitness side of things was not a, it was not an issue. I, I'm not a great, I'm more of a night out, a night owl than an early bird. So getting up and doing those runs, you know, I had to get used to that, you know, so for, but maybe the first of the first mile of three or five was probably, I was seeing eyelids only and just, you know, I had a sense of where we were running and then I'd gradually open the eyes and, and, and complete the, the, the rest of it. But, you know, I just I just felt like the way they handled it, the way they orchestrated it. You know, you talk about all the sort of shot listing and the storyboarding and the logistical. Well, even before that, let's talk about the three years of research going into something like that. All of that is just mind. It's like my mind swims of, with all the logistical details. But boot camp alone, just the way they choreographed and coordinated. I'm like, my God, this takes a level of organization beyond anything that I would ever be able to do or you know I, I just I, I was just so impressed by that and um you know they they had a, a, a they had a, a German platoons in in boot camp with us that we never saw but they were trained separately it's where you would have ended up James <laughs> they, were, they would have been there and then when we were doing operations you know, of some kind of, you know, to get this flag or defend this building or whatever, they would suddenly appear in uniform with the weapons of the period 
and 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 they would just be that they would just be there they would just appear all from all over the place and it was amazing it was amazing and then they'd go away again that we wouldn't see them so we'd be doing all of this you know we're in the barracks we're we're uh, we're covering a lot of ground never saw anybody else and 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 i know one of the sort of one of the trainers uh was involved who's special forces actually i think he uh, was an sas guy and i worked with his name's paul pornby and i and i worked with paul later on a show called strike back out in south africa lovely lovely guy um but he was doing a lot of the training i think with or he was involved with with the sort of german outfit and um you know, I so I I just thought the way that they the way that they they did it was was amazing. And of course, you know, I'm learning about capillary bleeding, venous bleeding, arterial bleeding, learning how to dress, how to administer sulfur and the serrets and stuff like that in the classroom. A lot of that with Dale, and Dale, I think, had you know, he always had this thing that he kept would he would say about you know, you look after the medic, the medic looks after you. He had experiences, I think. Of himself you know being helped by medics in service and um so he was a great teacher great nurturer uh but you know my part of my thing from for boot camp was to obviously we're all caught part of it was we were we didn't know each other's names it was all about the character names and you all had to be you just you know fit into that role and be that role uh, from boot camp you know which everybody did everybody embraced but part of my deal was after a day's activity and after chow, you know, we, I'd have to go around and check on everybody, you know, all the platoons, corker and boots, you know, where I'm going with that, you know, killers, man. And that first, you know, first few days is just, ah. Oh. And so the second skins were coming out, but after a while, you know, people were starting to come to me with all sorts of ailments, James, you know, weird rashes. Oh, I what am I going to do? You know, it's like, <laughs> there's a second skin. <laughs> you know so but the one of the things that i always uh always makes me laugh you know and i've said this before but you know uh, ron livingston uh, the great ron you know um we had fish for dinner one night and um he uh he got this like javelin of a of a fish bone stuck at the back of his throat and didn't know what to do with it you know so so and then he came up with the idea, oh, well, you know, I'll go to Doc. He'll, he'll know what to, to do. <laughs> you know, so uh, it was, a, it was you know, I got this sort of the, the flashlight, the, the torch there, and I, and I looked at the back of his throat, and indeed it was there. It was just awful looking. I was like, man, I just, I didn't know I was not gagging all the time. So I ended up, I, I kind of created this Frankenstein contraption, all sterilized obviously, and uh, that I could, I had a trigger mechanism on one hand and had tweezers on the other. And I don't know what was the, the sort of like, it was some sort of pole device that was big enough so I could, and you as a paramedic, are right? you're, already, you're, you're already having kittens, like I can, I can tell. But it's like, you know, I'm, I put this thing into his mouth to try and class, because it was late, you know, it was really late. There was nowhere to go. We we're in the middle of nowhere. And I'm just, I'm trying to get this thing out. And he's, by this point, he is gagging. And I'm sort of pulling out. I'm going back in. And I'm like, he's not giving it a thought. I'm not giving it a thought. It's just like, there's a job to be done. Nix is in trouble. Let's get this taken care of. And um, and lo and behold, we did. I mean, it was, an, you know, it wasn't pleasant. But we got it. We got it out. And, you know, 
he he lived to see another day. And I often joke about the fact that it could it could have been the other way. And lament we could have been lamenting all the work that we lost. Yeah, I killed Subsequ- I killed the kid from Gentle Ben. That's not something that you <laughs> yeah, want on your resume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he had video diaries to shoot, you know, so that wasn't gonna be, you know, uh a great thing. But um so you know that was part of my package to to do to do that, but we were all kind of it was it was an amazing thing to sort of it served its purpose in terms of you know your 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 training for that period to soldier for that period, but you're also bonding and you're ironing out all the kinks. Obviously, you know you're making all the mistakes you can there, uh, but you know, and they were sort of throwing out promotions and this, that, and the other as we were going on, you know, and, and that's, you know, Damien was kind of having that to go through all of that stuff. And, um, you know, the purpose, the main purpose was just to, to, to create that, that, that band of brothers feel. And, and I think, you know, just in terms of the camaraderie, the commitment to the cause, you know, super, super talented. And I haven't been around pound for pound, you know, uh, actors of that caliber, as many as that, you know, ever since, you know, it's just, it's just, you are by the very nature of being around those people, you're, you sort of are elevated yourself. And that was a, you like to think a two way street, you know, everybody was kind of, there's no, I didn't see, uh, any ego involved because of the nature of what it was, you know? Um, so by the time we got ready, you know, the time we finished that up and we, which was a great sense of achievement. Um, you know, by the time we got to set, we were we were pretty ta- pretty damn tight. You know, it was a really good feeling to go into day one when you sometimes go, you know you're going to day one on other things. Maybe you maybe you've you've had a table read, so you've met people then. You know, you do your bit and say hi and whatever, and have a bit of a laugh and joke that afternoon. And then you're going away and then you're, you're turning up on set. You know, it's time to maybe do a little bit of rehearsal if you're lucky, but you know, you're doing, you're doing it. You know, we had that experience and I know there were others that came in to play later on, but you know, uh, for the core of us to have that initial thing was a great springboard, a great stepping stone, a great foundation to go on and, and, and really hit the ground running, you know, uh, which I think we all did. When I spoke to Dale, one of the most interesting stories, and I could relate so much because we use that same exact technique in a good fire department. You make it awful. You bring the men and women together. And by the time you leave, it's a bond that will stay through your whole career. But he told of Matt Damon being kept away from the rest of the cast during that boot camp. So talk to me about David Schwimmer, because clearly from watching the show, he... And I, I love that quote, you salute the rank, not the man. I've used that many times in my career in the fire service. So talk to me about how that factored into your experience. Well, I think they, it was a, a quirky little device. You know, they, they, I mean, he had a knee injury in quotations. I don't know. I don't know what the, uh, the reality of that was, but he did about a day, if that, I can't remember now. And they pulled him out of it, you know, and then they returned him later on so he's kind of you know i see see I'm, i i you know other fellas might know might know a bit more about this you know whether there was some sort of genuine thing and hbo got like they were you know they didn't want to see the, the star man get injured or whether it was a device by dale and such you know to sort of like create that thing but it did have an effect i suppose it did have a thing you know 
But I wouldn't say, you know, with all reports of the real Sobel and the real kind of feelings of the men, even though he really, you know, did an incredible job in terms of his part in creating this, this, this legendary easy company, you know, the actual, that kind of, that animosity that, the, you know, what, none of us felt that, I don't think, really. I, I certainly didn't, not with, not with David. In fact, so there may have been that, if anything, we would be mocking him and ridiculing him for missing all the, the stuff, you know, so you'd, you'd be, you'd, you know, hack on him for that. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in a, in, a, in a nasty way or anything. In fact, you know, a lot of the time when David was in town, we'd, you know, we'd go out and, you know, it was a really, I remember one, night you know we were out with him and uh he you know obviously had the cap on and he was all doing his stuff but he was impossible to at that point with the friends fame you know it was really he could not his physicality everything about him i mean we went to some ridiculous thing on the embankment it was some sort of bar club thing and uh near the thames and uh you know it was uh <laughs> you know we had about 10 minutes of just you know having a drink together and then we were swarmed and we would just it was just ridiculous you know so we had to go we had to get out of there and but so outside of it you know outside of it once we boot camp was you know done i think you know it was it was nothing there was no problem you know um but i thought it was a pretty nice way to for him psychologically to kind of have that detachment uh to come in and not have any sort of you know, emotional connection or bond with, with anybody really, you know, uh, doing the work, doing, doing to play Sobel, you know, um, uh, but as I say, you know, you know, outside of that, uh, you know, we, we would see him and, um, have dinner or drink or whatever. And, uh, you know, the same thing was done for, uh, for the replacements that would come in. You know, a lot of them, the brief was, you know, the cadre and Dale would sort of say, look, they haven't gone what you've gone through. And if you think about what Easy Company went through and Tacoa and going through Normandy and, you know, all this kind of stuff, and though, you know, you reach Eindhoven or whatever and you get these replacements that hadn't hadn't been through that, not with you, you know. Now there's a a thing. And that was obviously a, a, a thing, a genuine thing, you know, that people like Heffron or Shifty Powers would talk about. Um. And so they were planting that seed as well for us to sort of, you know, have a bit maybe a bit more standoffish or a bit more, have a bit more of an edge around these guys that haven't been and gone through what you've done, you know, which was fine. And a lot of people that was, you know, was a, there was a, mythology, uh, a methodical way of, of uh, approach to that that sort of worked, I suppose, in some senses. But even that, I felt like it was like a half measure for me because I was always, uh, you know, it goes back to that thing about, you know, I, I always just felt like, uh, cause there were a few people that were suddenly really taking it personally. I remember. And I'm like, listen, this is part of the thing. Cause you know, you want to, you want an actor to be ultimately confident doing the work. Um, and, and, and to feel like there isn't something that's actually personal that's outside of the work that they're thinking, wait a minute, what's, what's happening here? What did I do? What did I say? So I felt like then, uh, you know, Call me a whistleblower, James. I don't know. But I just felt like there was some some moments I had to go to when when people were, you know, certain actors, I was like, hey, this isn't you. This isn't you. This is part of the thing. You know, this is the way. And try to explain the history of it in in, in the reality of it, you know, the, the, what, what did happen. So if you get any of that, that's all part of it. But then, you know, maybe feed that in and, and, and you know, uh, and you'll be able to play something, you know. So I don't know. Um, 
but I didn't I didn't necessarily think it was a bad idea as well. I mean, there, there was that there was a sort of middle ground there somewhere. Um, but, you know, all of these techniques were interesting. I felt like there were, you know, f- filmmaking in general, you know, we're all training, whatever. There's always there's always that's there's always those little devices that uh, and little enablers um, that you're given and that you can learn from that will be able to give you the, just that little extra percent, which I think, you know, when we, when it came to doing the work, I would say most more often than not, they were the right things to listen to and to do. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, they were, they were, they were, they were allies to the process. Yeah. Well, it definitely worked on screen, 100%. Like, you know, as you said, with Sobel, you could feel it. You could feel it through the screen. And then with the replacements, some of that animosity, you know, you could feel that too. And I saw it when Dale, you know, when we went through the boot camp, the original cast in Japan, and then people started coming through. There was a second wave about a year later. And I remember feeling that in myself. Like, yeah, but because some people came from other places and, you know, were for lack of a better word, very arrogant. And you're like, you haven't earned the right to be arrogant here. You know what I mean? Um, and yep. then when you look at the fire service, which is the other thing that I know, as a probationary firefighter, you know nothing. As a probationary firefighter that actually does know other stuff, but you've come to a new fire department, you have to have humility as well. Because when in reality, without being dramatic now, lives actually depend on your performance yeah. You can't walk into a new fire department and say, everyone, you have to entrust, trust me implicitly because I've never done this before or I've done this for five years or 10 years, or whatever. You have to build that trust. So I think that that process, whether it was by accident or deliberate, I'm guessing it was probably deliberate. And of yeah. course, like you said, no animosity to the actor, but the acting process, yes. I think by accident or deliberate, it worked so, so well. And it jumped out at me on screen. I'm sure members of the military and law enforcement did as well. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, it was such an important piece uh, to portray. And I think, you know, the vets themselves, as I said, you know, talked a lot about that type of thing. And some of them, I think it may be Shifty Powers. I remember the real Shifty Powers talking about how he didn't, he just didn't want to know the replacements because, you know, the, the, he didn't want to see a young, you know, green soldier kind of just, you know, um, buy it you know he didn't he didn't want to he didn't want to see anybody he didn't want to have that that situation where you know they're 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 they're, they're gone in no time flat and and uh, so he, that his distance from new people coming in was deliberate in that in for those reasons you know um and uh you know we in in the script in in bastone you know it's not necessarily uh a, a, well it Roe does, does this to replacements. He does it to Heffron, but he does it to to most of the others, even the Dakota men. You know, we're we're playing that idea of of not using nicknames, sort of keeping some kind of distance uh, psychologically. You know, not getting too close because he knows that chances are he's going to have to try and save them. You know, at some point, and uh, and and the chances are he may not be able to. So it's it's like a so we kind of try to highlight some of that going on um, in, in a different way because obviously you know Roe was there from the beginning, but it was uh, I thought that was an interesting thing to to, to look at um, as well as things like you know combat fatigue, which 
we tried to kind of touch on as well. And, and, and um, I think that was the thing with all of our, with the script, it was well-researched and well-written by all the people involved. You know, we did have that added extra of having vets either on the other end of the line or, or with us, literally traveling with us and they're on set. So, you know, where, you know, there's the validation. Did this happen? Yeah, they go, you know, that's that's pretty spot on, you know, or that's a crack of shit. Go on and tell you how it's done, you know, or whether you would say that or not, you know. So so that was great. It was a great source of confidence uh, again. Um, you know, and you get to a level, when you get to that level of confidence, and, then, and, and it's not being overconfident, you know, you, you need that thing that's going to be able to relax you enough to forget about everything. You throw it everything away. You literally forget about it, play the moments. Uh, but those moments are golden when everything is, uh, when the homework's been done, you know, uh, because you're not floundering then. You're not floundering if the homework is done, if the prep is done, if you've talked to the people, you've had the confirmation of certain things, you're guided by the best people in, in the business, you're acting alongside the best actors you've ever worked with. You know, it's hard to, hard to mess that up, you know, in some ways. Obviously, you can still be received negatively for whatever reasons, you know, but I don't think we could have been, you can't label out the lack of commitment to the cause or just how thorough we were all in. And I don't just mean actors, I mean across the board, you know, everybody was in tune in that period of time to deliver the best possible work they could. Well, you talked about the real men, some of them being on set, some of them being accessible still. Um, I share a clip often, and it is of Dick Winters recalling um, uh, a letter. And he, I think, I can't remember if it's himself or one of the other men, but he says, you know, um, a grandchild says, you know, Grandpa, did you, uh, were you a hero in the war? And Dick Winters starts choking up and he says, you know, no, but I serve with a company of heroes. So, so I always refer to this. If you want to debunk the manly man, rub some dirt in it, don't be a pussy bullshit that we were raised on, look at the real men of Easy Company as they speak on each episode of Band of Brothers. And over and over again, you see the raw emotion 60 plus years later. So were you and or you know any of the uh, cast members exposed to some of that raw emotion from those men you know, the 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 uh, the cost of war 60 plus years later um well that was sergeant mike ranny i believe that wrote that that there was a letter the letter was there but um uh i, I mean i you know i i i didn't have obviously as i was, as i said i didn't i didn't have doc i didn't have that facility to be able to go to him um and, and Ralph Spina was a, was a was a telephone conversation, so that was, you know, a, a, an isolated event. Obviously, there were other actors that, like Jimmy Maddio, who played Baconti, Frank Baconti. I mean, they had a very close relationship. Um, Frank was the obvious one for me with his relationship to Bill. Um, I think that was like fathoms deep, and up to the point of him passing away, it was fathoms deep. You know. So they might have got into those situations, you know, and had, and Frank may have seen things or, because the, the thing about Heffron and uh, sort of Garnier and, and Heffron were they, they were talkers, you know, they were very, 
open about that, you know. Um, and so you could you could get to the sort of to the details of some stuff. And you know, it's uh, I mean, you've seen it on the show. You know, you you look you look at them, uh, which is the best thing for the you know for all that we did. There's nothing that tops the actual talking heads of uh, the real guys, obviously. And um, but you see, don't you? You see how raw. I mean, just winters that that moment you're talking about which is like, you know, arguably the moment of the entire series, isn't it? How somebody like Winters, you know, he's got that, that it's right there, isn't it? That emotion, it's right there. The eyes well up, it's just, it's there. And you have that moment with Johnny Martin, the real Johnny Martin in, in The Talking Head um, and others, you know, um, that just, you know, it's, 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 really, it's really there. It's like a flimsy lid on top of it all. Um, and you know the love is just like you say their love they're not it's just there it's so sort of palpable i love that about them you know they really do they really feel, feel um fondly and 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 uh it, it, i think those reunions you know for those that did attend you know could feel that they could attend you know uh you could see it you can see the sort of the the what it means to be around to be around those fellas, you know, um, you know, and, 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 and just to, to divert slightly, but to, to go back to what I was saying about that, that hub and that sort of charity that I saw, you know, the same thing happens, happens there, you know, it's just the, the glee that's sort of with, within them, you know, to see people of their kind, you know, people that they were with in, in these extraordinary conditions, you know, being able to share that, uh, even if it's just sort of a, just a feeling, you know, then you have to be talking specifically about it. It's just being in the company of that makes the difference and can lift a face and crack a smile. Um, you know, I, I love that. I love that sort of, they've, that they've got that, you know? Um, so, and I, so I think, you know, they, the bottom line about Band of Brothers and, you know, and Dale's, Dale said this many a time is that for all of the, the big battles and, and we all, we all love to see those kind of things, those spectacular events on screen happening. And of course, depicting moments in history like this, but it is about those human stories. It is about the human connection. It is just about being human and the personalities within that, you know, that old cliche of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, people we can relate to that are in that. And then you question, well, James, you've, you know, with what you've done in your career, you know, you, I'm more, you know, you've done stuff, you know, but I can ask the question as a thespian saying, if I was in that position, how would I react? Would I be able to deal with that? You know, those life or death situations, which you've done, you know, how would I, people do that, you know? And, and, and so, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's that it's, it's the human. And, and so we were fortunate, you know, to, to have people, that that were able to, to speak about their experiences and be able to connect and be able to give a little insight into the sort of psychology of it all and how they feel about things. And yes, I'm sure after a few beers, you know, it got quite emotional for, 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 for the real Bill and Garnier and, and Frank, and they're talking about stuff because when they talk about that, that's where it really came out when it, I think they're talking about like Pencala or Mark, you know, people that were, they lost along the way. You know, and they think about that are buried, you know, over here. 
in Europe, you know, that's when it hits home. I think a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's just, just that, you know, it's just remembering that, that sort of felt that, that, that tree that has been felled, that tree of youth, you know, and, uh, and so that gets them emotional, but I think, you know, they, they, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't personally have that sort of moment, but I heard stories and, um, you know, it, it just stands to reason in many ways that it would be like that. And, but, um, we were just lucky. We were just lucky to have that resource and something to tap into. Um, it was priceless. It was invaluable. Uh, like I say, you couldn't make exactly the same type of thing now. You just couldn't. Uh, so we were very lucky boys and, and, and to be able to have that. Absolutely. Well, I want to read something that Dale sent to me. So I asked him and Julia, hey, have you got anything? And I'm going to have Shane on the show. Um, and so he sent me this email. Doc was a serious and dedicated student in training. I did my best to give him field first aid instruction, but he always wanted to know more. And he did some studying, which only led to some more difficult questions. And those questions were some of the most insightful and penetrating things I've ever had to discuss with him. I mostly had to reflect on things I remembered personally about being wounded. He soaked it all up like a sponge and I saw him recreate some of that during scenes that we were shooting. Made me very proud. There were a lot of emotional moments, but the one that nearly brought tears to my eyes, which, by the way, is is incredible <laughs> to bring tears <laughs> to Delta's eyes, um, was the scene when he sits next to the French nurse, both of them exhausted mentally and physically. I saw something in Doc's eyes that truly moved me. Now, kind of piggybacking on that, as a paramedic and something I've spoken about a lot, I lost so many people in my career i was kind of what they term as a black cloud so i had all the people as we were talking prior to recording that should have survived but didn't you know or you know had these kind of unsurvivable things whether it's brain brain bleeds or triple a's or you know all these awful things that can happen to the human body and so there is that inability to save which is crushing because you go to school you read the textbooks you play on the mannequin like do a b and c and then they'll jump up give you a hug and bake you a cake um, the reality is not that, not even close. Um, so in the scene in Bastogne, um, you talk about the Belgian nurse. That was one of the most powerful scenes for me because as a medic myself, I can relate to that feeling, that feeling of exhaustion, that um, moral injury, that, you know, crushing weight of, you know, death after death after death. And don't get me wrong, you know, there's a lot of pre-codes and things that we did save, but there's still you know, a body count to every medic, every firefighter, every police officer's career that amounts. So talk to me about, you know, that scene and, and, and you know, what it was like from the inside looking out. It was such a fabulous scene to be involved with. And I think David Leland, who directed it, was such an influential player for me. Um, and again, you go back to acute sensitivity of subject matter. Dale has that uh, as the as the guy overseeing things. But David as a as a director theater background but great filmic director he and i would often be in the foxhole first thing in the morning just he and i that's it that's it everybody was sent away or told to come later on you know and we'd just talk about it talk about what we we're going to need to do today what the scene was thoughts about it how we're going to handle it and then he'd bring some of the techie guys in and we'll go through the specifics of certain things and other people will come into play but it was almost like a in that sense it was like a play you know, you had the real sense of 
you know, talking about stuff, having the time and the luxury to do that. It's very unusual for, especially TV. But these were shot like, obviously, movies every episode, you know. Well, that is my, I think that is my favourite scene. Uh, the juxtaposition of that and trying to save and, and not being able to, the, the soldier in the crypt, if you remember, uh, before that. Um, guy, lovely guy called Tim getting very sticky with fake blood all afternoon and, and very hot. Um, but uh, I, I think the, like you say, that that, that kind of, that almost feeling of like, well, that relentless carousel of, of helplessness and hopelessness almost um, trying to do what they're doing and on limited resources, um, you know, it was emotionally charged in that crypt scene, if you remember. And I think Doc kind of just, he gets angry, not with the nurses or anything, but it's just, it's just, just that, the, how futile it all seems, you know. And, uh, and then, of course, you've got that very quiet scene that is right on the back of it, I think, isn't it? And it, and it, and it's with Roe and, and Renee and, and some sort of smoking kind of cinders somewhere. And, you know, it's a cold, cold setting, of course, or it's supposed to be, but, you know, it's one of the warmest scenes of the show. I, th I think, you know, it's written that way. I'm not just saying because we played it some way, but it's just written that way. You know, that's what struck me that something this warm in something so cold. But, um, but yeah, that sense of that sense of fatigue, that sense of helplessness, but that connection, obviously, in terms of what they were both trying to do, save lives in a theatre of war. I mean, it's got to be the hardest thing to do, isn't it? I mean, it, um. And you've got this, obviously, you know, there's a Cajun French and there's a sort of Belgian French speaking nurse, you know, you have these, th this connection there, but I, I just love that. And then obviously the chocolate that comes out and uh, there's all that stuff. But I think, yeah, that, that meeting of that, that sort of spiritual connection between them, you know, there's a lot said, there's a lot, there's a lot said without saying much, I think is the thing. And that's always the, good screenwriting and, and as actors, you know, playing those sorts of things are the best things to play, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, all that you're getting from it or all that you've just said to me about it um, is, is really what we were trying to do, you know, so to, 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 to bring that all forward and, 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 and just to put it right up front uh, that this, this rotation, because I even thinking even, at the end of that scene, there's, some, there's a there's a there's a there's a man coming in, isn't there? There's an injured man that they they're coming in and they're off again, you know. So it's just a, it's the minute, it's the smallest of windows where they have that connection and ability to just have a a moment, you know. The air brake is released just a little bit. Um, I wish he had taken some chocolate, but there you go. But anyway, he didn't. So and then they're up and they're off and they're they're gone again, you know. But uh, but I think, yeah, I think it's a great point in the script. I think, you know, in broadening out a little bit, you know, dollying back, I think that what a, what an interesting thing, and I'm not just saying this because I, I was in it and I happened to be like the, you know, Damien for a month in that episode, but I was, I just think it was a smart thing for HBO to do. I don't, you know, Battle of the Bulge. I mean, we're all familiar with, you know, 
the shellacking, as it were, you know, the, the, as it was known with the with the German shelling and the Beaujac and all that sort of stuff. But you know, because we had those two episodes, we had plenty of time for that to happen. Um, the spectacle of that, you know, which needed to also be seen, you know, for sure. But the way they just kind of went off and decided to see it first and foremost through the eyes of a medic was just, I just thought it was an incredible thing. You know, I know I hadn't seen it. We've seen a few things like that. You mentioned Hacksaw Ridge earlier, you know, we've other things have been seen now through that sort of the medic's eyes as it were, but I can't really remember anything similar that was just, you know, aside from a scene or two that a medic was in, you know, not to see it through the POV of one. And I think, it was a, just a masterstroke. I think it was a really great, a great thing to do. And, and it gave you at that midpoint in the series, you know, uh, a different sort of um, perspective. And, and then, of course, we return uh, to the main uh, through line. But, yeah, I, th I think it was all in there, you know, going back to that scene, you know, in that point uh, uh, to sort of depict that fatigue, to, to, to depict that sort of, you know, they're carrying on. They know what they're dealing with. But the heroic element, of course, is that they're carrying on regardless. And 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 so they go back. But I but but, but, but that it's almost it's just such a it's it's such a sweet little section, a little uh, uh, you know, a, a very sort of um a scene that I feel like uh sits well within the chaos of it all and you need you need those breaks you need those breaks it's relenting i read somewhere that the the the, the, the amount of blood and all kinds of stuff just in bastone alone was more than the entire saving private ryan you know and that's just in bastone we haven't got to the breaking point episode yet you know so um you know they they did the hell out of it they 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 really did their homework and they wrote some scripts and they and they had everything, they threw everything at it to depict it the way that it came across. And, uh, but, but having those moments for the audience also, if you want to go and get dramatically theatrical in terms of the structure of things, you know, you need those breaks. And also what it, what does it do? It, it touches upon what I was saying earlier. It brings it back to the human element. Most important, most important. It's not whether you can load up an M1 quick, you know, it's like, let's just look at the human element. Not even about dressing or, you know, putting a serrette in somebody. Just two people talking about their experiences or not talking about their experiences, but just just two people having a moment to communicate and two personalities uh, that are different, but at the same time, so alike. And I think it was pitched just right, you know. No, it was it was amazing and really what resonated with me. Obviously, I didn't have a moment with the Belgian nurse during my career, but I will parallel it. For example, there was one horrendous car accident where a little girl was killed and she was roughly the same age as my son. And I remember, you know, calling him after that and obviously not telling him anything. I mean, he's really, really young, but calling home and just talking to him, you know, and then you're you know halfway through maybe you finish the conversation the tones go off you jump on the rig and off you go run another one or you're at the hospital you've just literally offloaded a patient that you know nearly dead dead whatever they were um and then your radio starts blaring hey we're short of people we need you back out there and you know you clean up your shit and you get back out there again so yeah that that pause you know whether it's in the 
EMS cafeteria, just grabbing a freaking, you know, cup of coffee before you go out back into the ganglands of the streets or whatever it is that, you know, you do in your area. There is such a strong parallel between that scene. I'm sure, obviously, you know, military medics, but, you know, law enforcement, fire and all the other people that are kind of out, out when everyone else is safely in their beds. Yeah, well, listen, a big salute to you, James, that, you know, I mean, I had the luxury of not doing it for real, you know, and not having it really that sort of, you know, I, I just, I, it is incredible. It is incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how you come away with without scar tissue. You know, I just, you know, and that kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, the things in place of when you get out of that, if you can survive something like that, you know, that, you know, that's, it almost seems like, that's the first hurdle. It's a big hurdle, but you've got over that. But now how do you survive the rest of it on yeah. the outside? You know, so it's, yeah. it's, um, it's complex, you know. No, it uh, is. And, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a constant work in progress to maintain your physical and mental health in this profession. Because sadly, especially in the fire service in America, the way that they work, those men and women, is counter productive when it comes to overall mental and physical health so they're literally swimming upstream the whole time and so yeah i mean that's that's the reason i started this podcast and you know i think the people who are fortunate have a good foundation and you know a solid childhood behind them where maybe you had some stuff but you were able to process that healthily and move on or you know maybe you were just so fortunate you didn't have a lot in you know in the bucket when you first entered but but yeah and it's it's just this this ongoing thing but sadly a lot of us succumb to physical illness to mental illness and that's why you know i think so many of us are are raising our voices and saying look the way we're doing it is literally you know killing us you know killing our men and women you know enough of us die on the job itself you know by fire by gunfire whatever it is but the thought that they come home and then take their own life you know or or succumb to you know, a, a work-related cancer or heart disease. I mean, to me, that those preventable elements are unacceptable. You know, I can't stop some horrific tornado blowing through here and, you know, ripping me out of my house, but I can stop at least some of the diseases that, you know, we, we can potentially get. And it's such a such a hard sell in a profession where if you're not careful, you're just purely looking at how many bums you got and how many seats. And you're not looking, as you said, at the human beings in each of those seats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, are you noticing anything though, James, where, you know, in and around your sort of sphere, you know, of, of things that are, I mean, you're doing your bit obviously, and you're, and you have great guests and they're doing theirs, but, um, you know, are you in a, in a, in a, in a broader circle, are you seeing stuff that is kind of trying to get in, place you know maybe at sort of state level or is there just or is it really an indie venture that they're, they're independents that are really taking it on themselves through communities and stuff like that to kind of you know show the way forward yeah no i'd say indie is a perfect example yeah there are some incredible human beings many of whom they're either still in a profession or transitioned out of the uniform professions that now take it upon themselves to start non-profits and training organizations um, well, simultaneously, governmentally, you know, it's not. I mean, we have a union and yet the working conditions are terrible, you know. And so there's, you know, I probably piss off a lot of people when I say this, but there's a lot of chess beating about our union. 
but the work week hasn't even been figured out yet. So I don't know how you can be so proud of yourself taking all these people's dues and you haven't even fixed something as basal as that. So, you know, it is, it's a lot of voices. But again, as we said, division versus unity, my hope is enough of us on the ground level unify and demand change. You know, whether it's, you know, in the military, all the burn drums and all these things that you're hearing now are causing our veterans, you know, illness, Agent Orange from, you know, Vietnam and, you know, the sleep deprivation is the big thing you know, with us and the fact that our responders are working sometimes double the work week of a person that pushes papers for a living is absolute insanity. So yeah, but it's it's about it's you know, educated and angry is what I like to say. That's what we need to do. Give people the tools to understand why they're angry, then get angry, then force change. Yeah. My gosh. My goodness. You're doing your bit, man. You're doing your bit. <laughs> well I've got enough enough piss of vinegar to share around. So <laughs> Well, I want to hit on one more spot before we then transition out of Banner Brothers and talk about, you know, life after Banner Brothers, because that in itself is a topic. Um, Chris Bourgeois, Bourgeois, excuse me, as the grandson of Doc Rowe. So talk to me about your relationship with him. And I know that, you know, he's just, I think, again, just come back from Europe for another D-Day kind of memorial. So I'd love to just kind of yeah. hear about post post nine post nine eleven post Banner Brothers um, and, you know, that kind of relationship. Well, that you know, the art that I mean, that's something that came out of of, of you know, it was an after uh, uh, event, really. I suppose you know, we uh, Chris and I, um, you know, we're pretty we're, we're pretty close, you know, we're pretty tight, and it, and so the the byproduct of of doing that show and and uh, you know, I didn't, I always wondered what it would be like to sort of have known him before, but then I I do remember that he said that you know. It wasn't like Eugene talked about the war, really. He wasn't one of those that did. So wouldn't he, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe he could have, you know, imparted some wisdom about, I don't know, whatever it is. And and But I do remember Chris saying he didn't really. In fact, when we went to the Bastogne together, we went to the 75th anniversary. And we were doing something for the U.S. Uh, embassy there. And, and uh, it was some kind of, um, it was just a little short piece. Uh, we did an interview and... It was a really touching moment, really. I, you know, Chris was saying about how the show or that, you know, he, he named me being the actor that, that I gave him his grandfather, you know, because he didn't know what he did in the war. He just didn't know. He didn't have the full um, complement of, uh, of, of, of facts, you know, on, or, or, or of what a medic did, you know. And, and so that was a... You know that was a, that that choked me up. I remember that it was a it was quite a moment. But you know, Chris is such an influential guy in terms of he's such a nice guy too. And you know, warm. He's a, a stand-up Dallas police officer now. But he's um, you know he he and I have uh, you know whenever we whenever we get together, it's the easiest thing in the world. You know, and uh, uh, our personalities are just easy going. You know, and uh, he's just. Uh, He's really so into the history. And if you talk about somebody at the forefront of preserving the memory, the guy's just, he, he's like a Dick Winters. I mean, he's like a Carwood Lipton. I mean, he's, a, he's, he's out there and uh, did a, a fantastic thing with the, uh, for, the, for the kids. He, he managed to get a, a really talented illustrator, I think from the Netherlands. Um, I think that's right. Uh, he... Had, had, had kind of pinned a, 
you know, an easy company story, I suppose, for the sort of school age kids. Lovely book. And that's kind of, you can find that in most of the museums that I've seen now in Europe. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of expanded globally with this thing as, a, as another way in, you know. Um, and he's very active in terms of like the family reunions. You know, he's really stepped up and over the years and been part of that. And uh, so, you know, he loves, he loves all that stuff. He has a genuine, genuine love and interest uh you know historically with all of it and and of course you know in order for people to not forget you know he's 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 doing his bit he's doing more than that and so uh it, you know he it was it's that, that's been an amazing thing to come out of, of of doing the show and i and i met you know there's marlene there's maxine and there's eugene Rowe jr and his wife betty and you know i met them during the paris uh the, we did a we had a Normandy premiere I remember uh, it was HBO built like a cinema or something on the beach like they can obviously uh and we did a we had a bus thing going down and and I think somebody we were still calling each other by character names at that point and somebody called out Doc and I turned and I saw this this lady you know and she just looking at me looking at me a certain way and I just I just knew she suddenly looking at me like i'm the guy that's playing her dad but i looked at her knowing that that was one of the daughters or a daughter you know and so uh, maxine and i we just uh you know embraced and best hug i've had to this day i think it was just a it was just an amazing moment and you know i've been to i've been up to the, the you know a lot, a lot of them live in baton rouge now and so i've been up there and shared king cake and uh you know we just sort of it, it's just it's just been a, a, an amazing thing you don't know how things are going to be received you don't know whether people are going to be um you know hospitable and, and and embracing of it all but i think it's gone beyond what i could have imagined you know um and you know i met so many when i was in france you know the family and the extended family uh and and each of them were just a gem they were just, they're all gems you know louisiana crowd just a great crowd and and Chris is right up there, you know, he's just right up there and he and I, and I would have been, I mean, work was a thing, so I couldn't go to that that was in Normandy recently, but I, that was part, if I could, I would have gone um, to see him, but hopefully I'm going to see him uh, in New Orleans um, in later on this summer. So we're going to, you know, we'll catch up then. And, uh, but that's what I mean, you know, 20 years and we're still getting up to mischief, still getting in trouble. Brilliant. Uh, so good to hear. People listening, it's uh, Doc Rowe Publishing on Instagram is Chris's handle. So that's, I think, where you can find the links to the books. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, then transitioning out then. So you do this incredible piece of television. Um, firstly, talk to me about, you know, the, the delay and when it was really becoming visible. And then I'd love to hear about auditioning afterwards and horsemanship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, remind me to <laughs> remind me to mention about a backflip as well. Okay, I'll right? put that on my notes. Keep that in your head. Keep that in your head. It's not not directly about me, but keep like, like it's 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 linked to horses. That horsey thing. So anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I don't think the show. I mean, you know, obviously it was. Um, I can never get this quite right. I've heard different people talk about it at different times, and I can't remember whether the first episode aired before. 9-11 or just after or episode two. I can't quite remember, but 
what I do know is that 9-11, on its run at least, you know, 9-11 was in and around the time. And I was in Colorado. I got stuck in Colorado during that period. Um, but I, my, my take from all of that, and quite rightly, because, I mean, I was just glued to the TV and it was all about 24-7 what was going on with the, in the world, you know. And um, so I feel like it kind of slipped the radar a little bit, slipped the net. And but then it started to repeat a little bit. But I but even then, you know, so, you know, we, we, we went through all that stuff. But I still feel like it really didn't gain traction. I mean, it only played in the UK, I think, once on the BBC, you know, so it didn't repeat. And it hasn't, you know, obviously we have this sort of way to stream it now. And I think, uh, uh, you know, like uh, and I can, I can name networks here, can't I, James? Yeah, yeah go for but, it. Um, like Sky, I think, or something like, you know, you can stream it, you can download it now sort of thing. But, um, you know, back then it was, it was nothing like that, you know, but I believe in, in the States, you know, my family over there would just, you know, they would say, you know, well, it's a repeating on like history or uh, Spike TV or something like that, you know, they were, and they got into a habit of around D-Day sort of repeating and having marathons and that kind of thing. But I really, truly, I think until, as I say, the, uh, the last 10 years as opposed to the first 10 i think the last 10 years has really has really kind of you know gained the momentum and sort of cemented itself i suppose if you want in terms of like a classic series to see you know it's 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 as as far as i can tell you know um uh you know and um you know, that's great. I mean, I, I, you know, early on within those first 10 years, I do remember, you know, receiving sort of stuff, you know, and fan mail and, and all the, the people that were around the world put together lovely things and all that sort of stuff that were, you know, into the sort of history already. So they were actively seeking and couldn't wait for something like that to come out, you know. Um, but then there were other people that were not necessarily like war genre, you know, fans necessarily. Um not looking for it in particular, but in particularly, but they, but they would come across it. They would stumble upon it. Or someone would say, word of mouth, you know, check this out. Well, it's war. Yeah, but no, no, it's a pretty good series. The stories, you know, it's like 10 movies, you know, and, uh, and so then that would happen and you'd get that. And even now, you know, even now, sort of through social media channels, you know, people will say, I, I have never seen this before. Somebody mentioned it. You know, and I'm not talking about a kid. I mean, I'm you know, it's older people are coming up and saying, "I've never, I never, I've never seen this before. I've heard about it, maybe, watched it. My gosh, you know, and 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 all of those lovely things that people can say, you know. But it, it's um, it's kind of ongoing, you know. But I do feel like you know, I, I mean, somebody told me one of the story and friends of mine. I've got a few now that they they talk about like reenacting groups that have. There were always kind of reenacting groups in and around it, but that show in particular that kind of like spawned these paratrooper, you know, screaming eagle outfits, you know. Uh, so when you go and you do these like D-Day events now, I mean, it's incredible. The scenes are incredible. And there are just so many dressed up, so many reenacting groups, but it actually goes beyond uniform. You know, there are civilians now in, places like Carantan or whatever that dress up in those period out outfits. Maybe some of the, it's a bit Truman show this, but you know, you have like, like, like hidden speaker systems all over the town where they're just blasting out, you know, Edith PF or something like that. You know, it's just kind of like, there's some kind of stuff going on there that you are just, you're all, and you're just thrown back. It's like a time capsule, you know, 
amazing stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think it's kind of been responsible for this big reenacting rebirth uh, that has just gone from strength to strength. And uh, you know, it's it's yeah, it's it's just been it's been it's been uh, you know uh, humbling to see, and and it's a real pleasure to see that it's still it being able to. And the other thing about it as well is that you know these sorts of things territorially play out at different points. So I think initially within those first five years, let's say, you know, there were countries and territories that were not getting it. They hadn't seen it yet, you know, and it would take a few years before they even got their first shot at it. So, you know what I mean? So so it took a little while for things to kind of get up to speed. And then obviously, you know, obviously, you know, once we get into the way that the the TV works now, you know, it's, it's pretty accessible. Um, and 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 easier to find but then obviously you know when those blu-rays were coming out the dvds things or the, then the blu-rays came out you know people were seeing it in all sorts of different ways and and um yeah it's still bizarre to me to be i feel proud you know to be it's you can be in a shit ton of stuff you know a shit ton nobody's nobody really sees it well even if they see it it just doesn't you know once it's done it's done this doesn't seem to be done. You know, it's always there. And people keep, I don't go out looking for it either. People feel like, you know, keep talking about it or keep, you know, James came to me. I didn't go to James. <laughs> it's, it's like, true. you know, <laughs> I, I'm not looking to kind of put myself out. I go, hey, remember me like a, you know, a one hit wonder musician talking about a record, you know, X amount of years ago. But I, it's not that. It's just the impact of the show and people want to, and, and, and because of those, fundamentally because of what it is which is you know something worth as we've talked about before it goes it's bigger than a job it's bigger it's a, it's a it's a it is that gateway it is something about you know honoring uh, this group of people that were kind of a cog in a big machine but a, an important cog and and trying to sort of tell their story you know and their piece of history you know that's that's an important thing to keep out there you know, it's not about an actor wanting to remain relevant. You know, it's that that's that's cheap, and it, it, it's 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 just not it's just not that. You know, you you have to be about the perseverance of of what we did uh, in terms of like trying to kind of educate, you know, future generations. And and I really like whenever I talk to to the young, you know, young kids and stuff like that. You know, it's always about, you know. Go go and try and read up now, you know, properly about certain things. Because, you know, there is that, obviously, there's that thing that happens where artistic license comes into play and there is a natural element of entertainment that you're constantly shifting. There's a gap that exists between historical accuracy 100%, which really doesn't, really doesn't happen, really. And that sort of entertainment factor, you know, in terms of like, what we got and the validate, even the vets understood that to a certain degree, you know, with certain things and certain poetic license maneuvers, you know, um, but as good as you could to make that gap as small as you could, you know, as fine as you could, that was our aim. And I think more often than not, you know, we were, we were getting somewhere, but, you know, you talk to any historian and, and uh, that, and I have now, you know, to get my own sort of a, understanding about it well they go well that age station was not there it was never there it was over here it was just around the corner it wasn't a church it was this place you know and you go ah okay 
Well, it did exist then. She would have been there. Yeah, she wouldn't have met him, but he would have met her. And yeah, okay, oh, that didn't happen. They may have done, but there was a, this other medic found what a, you know this nurse or whatever it is, and you know, and so you put those dots together. So there's a so there are things that you can understand that happen within the screenwriting and what they wanted to tell. I mean, Band of Brothers wasn't only telling its own story about Easy Company; it was trying to infuse other elements of that period of history. And other stories like Renee Le Maire, that Belgian nurse who was in Bastogne actively. I've been to where she, I've been to her family home. I've been to where her aid station actually was, which wasn't far from her home. You know, I've seen where she would have operated with Augusta Chiwi, who Augusta went on, the Congolese nurse went on to live into her 90s. You know, I've seen that. I've seen where they operated. But were they truly part of the Easy Company experience? Mm, probably not, you know. But they were there. They were in and around it. Is a medic story to tell. Let's try and tell that her story. In fact, and by the very nature of Band of Brothers coming into effect and being out there, it's enabled those people, the people of Bastogne especially, to have, and Chris and I went out there. We unveiled a memorial to, Best, uh, to Rene and Augusta. It just wouldn't have happened without the show being part of that, um, part of that, uh, Part of the uh, what? What do I want to say? Part of the part. Part of the story, really. Mm-hmm. Just, part of the just voice. Part of the voice. Part of the the, you know, the groundwork enabling them. Well, they they knew who they were, but it's just it, now it gave them this real moment and and a, and, a, and an official in, a, in an official capacity. It gave them a moment to celebrate their native angels, you know. And then so it was, uh, it, you know, there's some, some good some good stuff and. Uh, um, so I've lost my foxhole again, James. Where no, we, we're where good. We... We're good. So after the Banner Brothers, like you said, it took it took quite a while to to take hold. I mean, I've watched it hands down more than I've watched any other show or film ever. You know, the, as far as number of times I've watched, it. I think it's I think up either five or six times now, which is you know unheard of for anything else. Um, so you know, we're, we're We've already been chatting for almost two and a half hours, but I don't want to let you go without hearing the horse stories. I think we chatted prior. It was a kind of afterthought at the end of our previous conversation. So I want to make sure that we get it on tape. So talk to me about, you know, the, that audition story. And then as you prompted me, the, the backflip and where that carries in. We've, we've all, I mean, we've all, I'm, you know, we're in danger of this particular podcast interview going on for the entire length of the Band of Brothers series, but um, I'll try and be as uh, quick as I can on this. Um, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to, don't want to name names too much in this. But I, I went to, I went had a, so went out for another uh, job that was, um, it was uh, a period piece, Revolutionary War, and uh, um, and it was all kind of. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got to, got to be careful where I try. It's not like we're going, I'm going to be subpoenaed or anything, is it? But I'm, I'm so, I'm so anyway, I get this thing and it's, uh, it was for a particular part, particular captain. And like these things, when you go into a, an audition room, you know, it's like there are, you know, you, you put down what skills you've got, whether you can play guitar, I play a bit of guitar, you know, so you put down that uh, and you, and you, you know, can you ride a horse, you know? So, and, you know, even if you're not that great at any of these things, you kind of, when, you, when you're asked about that, especially if you, like I was saying earlier, you get that Jedi sense of feeling like you're getting somewhere and that they like you. So you feel like, you know, I'm not going to say I can't do any of these things, not now. So in this particular thing, in this particular role, they're asking if I can ride a horse. And I said, yeah, of course, you know. It'd been about 10 years since I'd actually got on one, probably longer than that. 
and had a mild trot. Right, that's about it. That's it. That's it. Uh, so, but with confidence, you know, I'm saying, yeah, no, 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 that's no problem. You know, so thinking nothing of it. I don't think I was given a proper script at that point. They were just, again, just a few sides, a few pages of, of dialogue. But again, it was one of those things I was coming back and that would be a question. And that was the unusual thing that it was the second time I went back, they asked again. And I just thought, well, maybe they forgot from last time. Uh, and then the third time, I think, I think it was one of those where I'm like, something's up here, you know, what do they want me to do? And the weird thing about it is that they are, they said, if you could grade yourself on a horse, you know, what, what would it, what would it be? How would you grade yourself on a horse? Well, out of 10. And I said, uh, oh, you know, and then my mind spinning, I'm starting to panic internally, but at the same time game face. So I said, well, I'm about a, uh, I'm about seven, I guess. But if, you know, if you've got the, if the training's there, if, it's, if you've got training, you know, and this was going to be shot in Romania, maybe an eight, which was really ridiculous, you know, light years ahead of what I actually am. Um, so, we, oh, that's fabulous. This is great. This is going to work. I go away and get this role. It's a pretty good role, you know. Uh, my thinking is I had about three weeks or so to get horse riding lessons. So I went to a local stable, uh, stable, stables, lovely lady called Sharon with an even sweeter horse called Katie. And so there I was on Katie learning the basics, fairly straightforward. I thought, this is, this is pretty neat. I'm born for this. So we did a few of those. And then I got the call from the history channel. We're doing it. It was a history channel. It was a New York, offices are called up or something and they said okay you uh we want you to uh they want to test want you they want you on film testing the camera uh, testing you on the horse and immediately again i'm like oh my god what is this what do they want me to do you know and i'm so then i'm sort of like i got got one of the scripts i think and there was something within the script that was about taking a hit taking a, a musket shot and I'm, and then the, the, my character was sort of flipped in on the side or under the under the horse, you know. And I'm like, to, to, so. In, but again, I'm rationalising that, thinking, well, I'm not going to be doing that. They're not going to, you know, insurers. There's a that's a stunt. That's you, James. James comes in, takes over that stunt, and we and then we wrap for the day, you know. But so so that's in my head all, all of a sudden. I'm going, oh my god. And then I'm so then I'm onto the agent. I'm saying. Listen, they want to test me on this thing. You know about my horse riding ability or lack of it. You've got to give me a few days before I've got, I'm having lessons. Just get me, buy me a few days, you know. Uh, in fact, I, I think I said a week, but he got a few days. That was it. And then all of a sudden, I'm on this, <laughs> I'm in this car. I'm being ridden up to, uh, driven up to uh, this, they called it the Devil's Horse Ranch, which was never a good sign if, if there was any sign. Uh, that was going to be good, but I, I, I just remember a lot of the stunt horses because they had loads and I, they, had, a lot of them have been shipped out to Romania, but I was left with the sort of the big chief of it all, you know, and uh, I guess I could, I, well, he, he was a sweet guy, French guy sat in the kitchen, 
we were breaking bread, we were sharing coffee, we were laughing, we were joking. He was a funny guy, you know. He's, and he's telling me all about his his his, his horse life, and uh, and then he had a partner who was kind of going to do the sh- the filming. So after all that was done, I thought I was kind of relaxed at this point. I was thinking this is this is going to be good. He's going to be on my side. There's no problem here. And we'll get through this, and then it's done. So we go into this. I do remember going past the horses that were left that were not going to go out. I do remember, again, this was another thing that was sort of like a foreshadowing event. They were flinching slightly as he, and he was just going past sort of flinching. And I was like, hmm, okay. They know who the boss is. And, uh, and I think I was starting to sort of, if I was starting to get a little bit nervous then. And, and I, and I remember seeing the horse that he was going to put me on. We went, it was a, an indoor arena that he went in that he, that he built. It was a huge, or it seemed like that. And and this horse, so I went from this lovely horse called Katie to this huge nightmare of a horse called Jeffrey. Again, Jeffrey doesn't really sell it, does it? But he was huge and, and, he, and he knew for damn sure I wasn't a seven out of 10, you know, um, or even an eight with training, of course. But uh, so I got on this thing. I tried to get Jeff into gear. Jeff didn't want to know. Uh, the chief got on his horse and he was kind of riding off. And uh, I was saying, come on, Jeff, come on, man, you know, just start, just start, you know, using my training that I had. Um, I, I don't think Jeff, I don't think Jeff cut. I didn't have any control. Jeff, it was all, it was all about Jeff, but he cut me some slack. He started to move. And then we sort of left or right. We we're going around. And then and the first time I've ever done this in my life, in fact, I probably didn't even know what the word meant. We we went out for a hack, you know, a mild hack. We were just going to go outside of the of the arena and go to this outer field, and this outer field was going to be the place we were going to do the the filming. And so there I was, you know, Jeff. Uh, every now and then, Jeff would stall, look at me with disdain, and then start up again. But I remember the gap between me and the chief. You know, it was it was getting wider and wider, and I was like, Jeffrey, you got you got to split the difference, man. I can't. And then I, I, I remember the Chiefs looking back at me at one point. It was like, well, you're not a rider. You're not a rider. You know what I, he knew. I think they all knew that I was not a rider. And uh, this was going to be, you know, bordering on, you know, s- sort of uh, serious injury. It was, it was, I was thinking, oh, my God, what, what am I getting into? Do I call this? Do I come clean? Or do I go for it and just hope for the best? I mean, Jeff knows the, the roots. He knows what he's doing. You know, some people, you know, dog walkers, if the dog's done, if it's an old dog, it knows the route. It doesn't, you don't need to take the dog for a walk. And that's how I felt like, well, you do need to take it, but you know, he knows where it's going. So it's not, you know, don't worry about it. I felt like Jeff was the same thing. So I, Jeff knows what he's doing here. Maybe he'll just take it over and make me look good. And so we get to this point where we get to this out of field and then the chief's partner comes up with the camera and I jokingly say something about, you know, make, make sure you make me look good. You know, choice cuts. Let's do the choice cuts because she was going to edit and all this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, don't worry. We'll, we'll do all that. So I have this helmet thing on, which was a, a size too big, it seemed. It was sort of starting to slip. But the other thing, which I forgot to say, is that the chief gave me this crop, riding crop, that no way on earth was I going to use it on this Jeff, you know. And, uh, but, I, you know, I held it. And so we're on this field and uh, I'm sort of trotting around. Uh, sun was out. It's a beautiful day, actually. And um, the chief starts to kind of do his thing. 
I'm not doing anything other than just Jeff doing his bit. Camera starts to roll. So my game face, I'm supposed to be this captain, for goodness sake, you know, this, 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 this game face. And then, so I'm sort of getting into it. And then I'm thinking, all right, let's try and get it. Let's try and get Jeff into a canter, which is always the trickiest thing anyway, isn't it? We try to sort of rhythmically go with that. And uh, it's not really happening that much. And then out of nowhere, the chief cracks Jeff's rawhide and Jeff, like, it's almost like warp speed. It felt like the Millennium Falcon doing hyperdrive or something. I just went off. I just, and I've never, I've never galloped in my life. I never got to that point. I didn't have enough lessons with Katie. You know, it was just like I went off. And I just held on for dear life. I mean, the weird thing about it is that I've, there was no sort of, you know, I, it was, I, we, we were gliding. I didn't feel like, you know, again, it comes back to Jeff. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was doing. It was all about Jeff. I had no control. I was uh, Captain Useless. But the way he was going and the way I was starting to do the, the, the sort of game face, I, you know, initially I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Then getting the game face, but the, I wasn't going to let go of those reins. And what, the, what was happening was the helmet was starting to slide over my eyes. So I couldn't see. I couldn't see where I was going half the time. And then I was going round. I found myself turning. I tried to do a turn or something like that. Uh, the camera's going on. He's going, this is great. This is great, whatever. And we're, we're riding back and forth. This went on, for, it felt like an age. I don't know I don't know how long it went on for, but we just, we were going, it was just going on forever, it seemed like. And I don't even know how I managed to stop Jeff, you know, let alone turn him. But something happened where I survived. I got off. I, I do remember the driver chuckling at me when I was approaching him, getting back into the car. And I thought, you know something, I, I don't. And then... Getting back home, and I don't even think because my 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 way to get home back to the village, you know, was was quite a convoluted thing. So somehow they had, they'd seen everything. So I, by the time I got back to the sort of this uh, station that I was I was at in the village, uh, I was walking to my car. I had a call come in. They'd they and it was like they've seen it. They they saw the stuff, and. Uh, and I went, oh, you're kidding me. They've seen already. He said, no, no, no. They said, just send it straight through. No problem. You know, good job. They were live streaming. Like, oh. <laughs> you know, but they said, they said one thing, uh, one thing that stood out. I said, yeah. He said, they thought you looked a bit petrified. And I was like, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I don't know. You know, um, that's probably right. That's probably right. He said, yeah, but, you know, don't worry. We'll, I mean, they seem, they, seem, they seem happy enough about it. So um, that was the end of the, the conversation, you know, the report that I was petrified. A good job. And um, so I don't quite know how that relates, sort of, you know, tallied up. In fact, it didn't really tally up because within, I don't know, it was a, another call came through just to say that I was fired. So it was one of those where I felt like, yeah, this is great. This is great. And I, I do remember sort of drowning my sorrows and thinking, oh, no, I went to some sort of country pub somewhere and thinking, what a ridiculous thing. Because of the process of going through all of those auditions and all that sort of stuff, you know, but thinking, oh, why did I say I was seven out of 10 and then an eight out of 10 or whatever it was, you know, but it's like, you got to try it, man. You just got to go for it. But fortunately, I because I put so much on tape, not horse riding aside, just acting wise, 
you know, they, 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 they wanted me in the show. So they, there was another captain and they, they said, we want you to be this captain. He's in a and, wheelchair. Uh, so it'd be perfect. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, you know, the good news they did say is that he doesn't ride, you know? So <laughs> after all that, you know, I was the, I was the captain on foot, but even, and I was, I was obviously pleased to be in it because I got into the show, you know, and, I, and it was a really great thing to be a part of, but, at the same time, I was thinking I had enough horse riding behind me to at least come in, get off and go into a tavern or come out of that tavern drunkenly, get on it. And because I even had enough confidence to sort of act in a drunken way, as long as I was only trotting off, you know, or something. Just give me something with the horse just to kind of as a as a marker, you know, that I, I did something, did some prep, but it never it wasn't to be, you know, Um so, you know, but I mentioned the, uh, the, 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 that backflip thing is only because and it, this wasn't me, but it happens to be my like favorite because there's always an horrendous audition story. Everybody, every actor will tell you that. I mean, if, if you get any other actors, you know, d- down the line on this, you know, just get them to push, push one out because it's, they're, they're everywhere. You know, the, rid, we're riddled with them. And, uh, but my friend, it was some sort of commercial. In fact, he's in the show. His name's Bart Ruspoli. He plays Ed Tipper uh, in, in Banner Brothers. And, um, there's a very good scene with Tipper when he, uh, he there's a, he gets a hit uh, explosion and Lieb got cradling in and his legs all damaged and all this sort of stuff is well, well done. Um, but he actually going for an audition for, uh, for, for something. And they were asking him about, he was fairly sporty um, asking him about his flexibility and mobility and his fitness levels. He's saying, Oh, all good, all good. But I don't think he realized that, it was a kind of, it needed a, a sort of an acrobatic flexibility. And so, again, using that same feeling like you're getting somewhere and I'm not going to say I can't do something at this point, I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, with the idea that you might be able to get a bit of training in or do something. And so he said, yes, you know, uh, to a backflip. And then a bit, a bit like me, it was like, right, well, let's, let's test the backflip in the room so you know it comes back to that sort of thing don't it? you know actors courage or are, or are they are we just a bunch of muppets because you just go with it and you don't even think about it you know so there was literally potentially a life on the line and so he composed himself to do a backflip and launched launched it launched one landed because he's not the most coordinated of guys and i think you admit <laughs> that so He'd landed squarely on his shoulder blades, so didn't even get. Thank goodness he didn't go higher. And, and there's a neck thing, but I mean, well, that's your that's back. A, they asked for a backflip. I mean, back, come on. yeah, and a, and a, and a guaranteed winding. So he's just there on the floor, winded, and you know, casting people. You know, especially in commercials and stuff like that, they can be just you know, they're just writing that down on a bit of paper. He's sucking in air for all his worth. They're just going like, no, he's not any good. And then next, and so you know. That's uh, that's the world we're in. And again, you know, you kind of go home, you dust yourself off, you look yourself in the <laughs> in the mirror, and go, yeah, okay, tomorrow's another day. You know, shine on. <laughs> when you were talking about the horse being named Jeff, I kept flashing to that show, What We Do in the Shadows. Have you seen that one? The oh, vampire yeah. one, where um, yeah. there's the you know, Gregor, I think it is, the 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 romantic vampire from the past, and he keeps manifesting, and he's modern day, and his days. Your name is Jeff. Jeff sounds yeah. like male ejaculation. <laughs> Jeff. 
<laughs> but yeah, it's a little misleading for a terrifying giant horse to call him Jeff. So yeah, giant. shame on them. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, Jeff, you know, as I say, was a vet of the field, you know, in the field. So I felt literally in the field. And uh, I think that the, the if it was, you know, he knew and he was just getting me through a, a different kind of horse. I might have been in trouble there, but, you know, I didn't, that's the beauty of it. You know, he just he got me through it somehow. And like I say, I had no control at, at all, but, um, you know, uh, but it was a, you know, at least I got on it. It was a fun shoot. And, you know, the irony of it all as well, <clears throat> James, is that the guy that they brought in to do this role, uh, again, I'm not going to name names, but the, the guy that they brought in to do this role, and he did a, you know, a great job in, in terms of acting. And he was a writer. But ultimately, they didn't let him do it. Oh, really? It, it was, yeah, it was, much, it was too much of a stunt. It was too much. It was too dangerous to do. And ultimately, the stunt guys kind of did it, you know. So um, so that was the irony there, you know, um, and the extra little kick. But, you know, I, I got to do it. I got to work with some really great people and, and uh, you know, so uh, and actually, you know, although it wasn't as uh, as... As, as juicy a role let's say i think it was a, it was it was a good one the right one for me um you know and i had some yeah i had some nice scenes to play so i was kind of you know i was i was pleased about it i was happy and uh yeah but you know i was uh but you know another soldier obviously you know that was the other thing you know just uh tight casting kind of, going on that's a little bit of a theme you yes know, just which is kind of ridiculous or well, my girls think it's ridiculous you know my girls will go, really? Yeah. 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 Soldier again. I think it's just the way you cut your hair, daddy. I think, yeah, probably. Probably that. <laughs> well, yeah. Shane, it has been an amazing conversation. Um, I wish we could do, you know, much, much longer. We'll definitely have to do a part two down the road at some point. But um, what, an, what an amazing, you know, spectrum of places we've been from the mental health of, of real world vets today that you're working with from the actors and the uh the real you know easy company members of the show and then finishing with some awesome audition stories so i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the behind the shield podcast today well thank you james i mean it was a long epic and i apologize and obviously it was a bit of a rusty start needed to kind of get that engine and, and the cogs fart turning but um i you know what a host and keep up the spectacular work you're doing. You know, uh, it's amazing. And um, all I can say to that is, you know, just keep on, keep on shining. <laughs>